0: New 900 megabits per second Future Fiber is here. And with total home Wi-Fi included, you can connect all around your home. Get our ultimate speed, reliability and coverage for just £49 a month. New Future Fiber, same great value. Sign up now and get a £100 reward card. Search TalkTalk Future Fiber. Talk Talk, for everyone. CPI plus 3.7% annual increase from April 2023. Subject to local availability. Average speeds up to 900 megabits per second. 24-month contract. Reward card issued by Giftcloud. Cloud. T's and C's apply. So many people have demanded that
1: we ask David Icke to come back on the channel. It's blown me away, the amount of views, the amount of comments, the questions that have come in on back of the first podcast we did, Conspiracy Crimes of the Illuminati. If you've not seen that one yet, it's in the description box below the video. So, David has come up to the Guildford studio. Before the summer holidays, he gave me his book, The Trigger. Now, this is 900 pages long. In terms of audiobooks, um, you could probably get about 30 hours of audiobook content out of this. So, the depth in which he goes into this, I read it over the summer. We can't possibly, you know we're a, a podcast we can only do a fraction of what he's wrote so I urge people who want to learn more this is available worldwide on Amazon
2: davidike.com as well
1: and davidike.com as well so give Amazon the money okay so <laughs> go down to the description box below this video and buy it from davidike.com if you don't want to Fund Amazon's um, think that guy bought when I was on holiday. I saw a yacht that that guy allegedly had bought called the flying Fox. It was like a half a billion dollar thing. Bezos is his name. Bezos. So, so the structure of today's podcast is I have written notes throughout this book and I've got things that I think are going to be perhaps the most interest to the people who've subscribed to the channel. But before we get to this content, I've just got to ask David because it's the biggest news in the world right now. And maybe we can use this discussion to move over to this because there is a parallel in the people behind this and the people and what I'm going to ask is, David, what on earth did you think of Prince Andrew's BBC interview?
2: Well, it was always going to be uh, a disaster for a simple reason. When you're not telling the truth and you cannot explain yourself in a way that isn't sinister then you have to lie and if you lie especially in this situation then your lies better be pretty damn bloody good and you better be pretty damn bloody bright and unfortunately for him neither of those is true and therefore um it's clear that he has no defense from what he's accused of i mean once we are into situations where the defense from uh, having sex with an underage girl is not sweating, not going out in London without shirt and tie and going to a pizza restaurant. I mean, it's crazy. And that's an, an interesting point, which some people have made. These people don't go anywhere in public without a security um, operation which logs the movements. So if Prince Andrew um, can account for his movements to prove that what's said is not true, then in that BBC interview, he would have said, well, just hold on a second, here's the logs. But of course he didn't because they're not there. Um, And we saw the queen um, apparently, Prince Charles, uh, as well, maybe he got advised by Jimmy Savile um, from uh, from the Great Beyond. Sorry, the Great Beyond, um, to cut Andrew off, gone no more royal um, duties, and that was an attempt to stop a domino falling and start smacking the whole. Um, row of them down until we get deep into what the royal family is really involved in and um, how it connects into the same web that basically was responsible for 9-11, not saying the royal family were involved in that, but the web they're connected to absolutely was. And um, so it's an attempt to stop the hemorrhage. And of course, what the media do is they'll go so far usually overwhelmingly, and then they'll stop. Um, And uh, I do uh, feel that um, if this continues to gain momentum, it's one of the biggest threats to the um, royal family in um, a very, very long time, because so much is uh, there to come out. I'd like to explore this a bit more
1: but one of the things that you raised was the visit to the Peter Express in Woking. So we were there earlier this week and we filmed in there and Andrew said, you know, couldn't possibly have been with the alleged victim because I was at Peter Express in Woking at five in the afternoon. Well, Peter Express in
2: Woking closes at 10.30. Uh, exactly the 10.30 point is when Tramps opens? Yeah, that's exactly the point I made uh, myself on my, on my website. The time he's um saying he was there it was not the time he was supposed to be at tramps so there's desperation big time um written all over it um so he's in desperate trouble and because he is this is why the royal family are trying to uh cut and run uh, and hope it will go away but you know i've just mentioned it um you cannot you can because the media do mainstream media but you cannot take um, the Andrews situation with Epstein in isolation from the royal family, Prince Charles in particular, connection to Jimmy Savile. So just let's take a breath and look at it again. Uh, we have a single family operating out of London and somehow one of them gets involved um, with uh, a major paedophile and procurer of children for the rich and famous in the United States and further afield. And another one gets involved for decades as a close friend of Jimmy Savile in this country who was a historic level paedophile and procurer of children for the rich and famous. Uh, just a coincidence, nothing to worry about. Are you having a laugh? Uh, but this is this is the whole thing, you know, just just look, I mean, Savile was an inner bosom uh buddy of the uh, inner circle of the royal family for decades. Brought in there this is another coincidence, by the way. Nothing to worry about. Um in the nineteen sixties, by his own in his own words, by um Lord Mountbatten, who I've been pointing out for a long time was a pedophile, and of course this year a book came out using um information from freedom of information request to the fbi where at the fbi documents we're talking about mount Band being a pedophile so a, a pedophile takes a historic pedophile into the royal family becomes a decades-long friend of prince charles and the same family then have another um uh, a brother um uh, prince andrew who gets involved in one of the actually most high-profile paedophiles and procurers of children in america and we're supposed to think this is all a coincidence what it does is take us further down the road to what i've been saying in my book since the 1990s which is the royal family are big time into into paedophile rings and into satanic rings and they connect for reasons i explain in the books so um it's like you you're you're on the cusp you're on the cusp or another um another analogy the fingers in the dike but it's starting to rumble and um we'll see if it it comes down but if it does and the real truth comes out then the royal family will be no more so prince andrew
1: has been Isolated now, according to the tabloids, by Prince Charles and Prince Philip, they've put their foot down on him. Oh yeah, kicked him out the palace. Of course, they they would want to.
2: Is he finished, Andrew? I can't see how he can recover from this. Um, you know, once once you have cut somebody off in terms of royal duties, because he can't explain a relationship with a a horrific paedophile and procurer of children and trafficker of children unless some at some point you can say here's the proof i i I didn't know anything about it which which ain't going to come i can't see how you can justify saying okay it's long enough now come back because don't think people would have it
1: so in a criminal case the first thing your lawyer tells you is don't speak to the media don't speak to the police anything the police ask refer them to me so he went out Blabbed his mouth off to the BBC, said all these lies and inconsistencies. I imagine the FBI is going to be poring over that right now. But at head of the federal uh, law and order position is William Barr. Do you think it's possible that they will give Andrew a pass? Because I noticed that Trump and the Queen are about to meet. So this could be some kind of power play by Trump.
2: Yeah, and also, you know... uh as i was reading recently uh bars come out and said all all those um inconsistencies regarding the death of epstein they were just a series of basically you know things that just just happened and it was just a you know not a conspiracy um so that don't give you a lot of confidence does it and the other thing is you see what um which relates to this what um has um been done in terms of the queen cutting off andrew is kind of presented as the queen acting decisively because of you know things that andrew was possibly involved in and all that stuff in other words, the queen kind of cares, We mustn't. you mustn't have done this, you shouldn't have done this and all this stuff. No, no. What she's saying is, Andrew, you shouldn't have got caught, right? Which is a very different thing because you'll remember that recently an ABC television anchor, what we call a presenter or news pre- uh, presenter, um, was um, on a live mic being filmed, but it wasn't for air she was talking to people in the gallery i think and it was leaked by uh, or to project veritas and she described um that she had the epstein story three years earlier uh and she had clinton she had prince andrew and all this and abc wouldn't air it and one of the reasons she says in this Leaked uh, video was threats from the royal family. So the royal family couldn't give a damn about abused kids. They give a damn about getting caught being involved with them, and uh, and so uh, the the whole royal um, farce is is just um, it's in your face. But people just you know, certainly the media won't go far enough for the whole house of cards to come down. And even on another level, you know, we're heading towards 2020 and we have a situation in Britain and Commonwealth countries too, Canada and Australia New Zealand, where the head of state is chosen from a single family, i.e. bloodline, that very short time ago came out of Germany, and the succession of who becomes head of state is decided by who had sex with who, in what order. I mean, hello, if... Um, If British people or the nation as a whole wants to have any self-respect, that has to stop. I mean, you have um, sports teams and crowds and all these different occasions where people are singing the national anthem, but it's not. It's not an anthem to the country. It's an anthem to a woman, to a monarch in which they actually demand in this anthem to be reigned over by this woman and uh, you know it's insane It's, it's it's absolute madness and um that's if they were the nicest family in human history given that they are not quite that to say the very least um it makes it even more crazy that we have this whole institution which is um which is vampiring money off the population while kids go to go to bed hungry in this country
1: you've mentioned andrew and epstein you've mentioned charles and savile is there a history going further back of the royals and
2: paedophilia well in some of my books i picked up these bloodlines that became known as royalty um and you can chart them through history uh, and you can find child abuse pedophilia, and you can find human sacrifice. Um, what is royalty? Why is it someone 's genetics that decides they will be head of state in a country or absolutely absolutely one hundred percent dictatorially control countries for a, a long long time it's because they claim that they're their bloodline is special. Why do they call the aristocracy blue bloods as opposed to what everyone else is like? Why do these families incessantly interbreed all the way through the ages? Um, Not out of of love and attraction uh, overwhelmingly, but because of bloodline. Why when these same bloodlines, um, apart from a few left now, that we still call royal like the Windsors, or the House of Saxe Coburg, Goethe, as it really is, German House of, of um, Royal House. Um, why, when a lot of these bloodlines moved into the dark suit professions and took over banking and business and um, politics and uh, uh, all these other um, institutions, media ownership, um, why did they also incessantly interbreed with each other as well? Why do we have Eastern establishment families of the United States who interbreed with each other? Because there is a particular genetics, I call it hybrid genetics. um, And it's what was referred to at one point as the bloodlines of the gods. And because there is a, uh, these hybrid bloodlines, part human, part non-human, Uh, which goes back, I'd say, to the Bible, but the same story is everywhere in ancient cultures. The biblical version of it it is the sons of God who interbred with the daughters of men and all that stuff. Um, It's this hybrid genetics, actually hybrid um, information fields, if you get deeper into reality, that is the core of why they think they're special and above the rest of the population this is why they won't in any way where the royal title uh, or the royal rulership will be inherited um do they um interbreed with what are called commoners i mean you see kate middleton she was described when she married william as a commoner then a few um Burke's peerage type people um, who look into these aristocratic uh, backgrounds and bloodlines. They did a bit of research into Kate Middleton and found she came from a whoop there, whoops, um, blue blood background. So, um, which didn't surprise me to say the least. Um, So there's, um, there is a history, not just of the, the bloodline, which for a long time was called Royal in terms of Windsor still is, but also of this pedophilia, Satanism um, because you know, when they uh, talk about the ancients um, sacrificing children to the gods, or what's the term, sacrificing young virgins, children, to the gods, um, This, these gods, this non-human force that's actually behind human events, I don't care if people start David, me, I don't care, I don't give a shit, mate. Just look at the evidence. Um, and... Uh, This these gods um, are these non-human entities that operate outside of human sight, which of course is very narrow human sight. We can see hardly anything. And it's that gods interbreeding connection which created royalty and created aristocracy. That's why they see themselves as better than us.
1: We had a guest on recently, David MacMillan. He's coming tonight, actually. And at the end of the conversation, he believes that the infinite improbability of that mitochondria Existing on Earth just out, out of itself. There wasn't enough time looking at the probabilities. It must have come from somewhere else. Is that something that, that, that you've looked at? Well, I've, been,
2: I've, been, I've been writing about it for uh, the best part of 30 years. Um, it's very clear that um, humanity is being um, manipulated. Uh, generation after generation into what I might call a perceptual bubble. Perceptions are everything. What you perceive is how you behave. It's everything. It's your perceptions, i.e., what I would say, programming. Because if you look at a human life, you come out of the womb and you hit parental programming, Which is not through malevolence but the parents have been through what you were about to go through and bought it so they pass that programming on to you you hit the education system at an ever earlier age and now throughout your formative years you've got representatives of the state um, who are giving you the state's version of everything all the way through your formative years the media is pounding the same um, version of reality at you science is telling you that apart from quantum physics um, medicine's telling you that, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and then you've got peer pressure around you that's been through the same programming of perception and, and accepted it and believed it. And they give you a hard time if you have a different perception to what they've been programmed to have. And basically, we've, we've got a situation where from cradle to grave, a human life is a perceptual download to hold us in a narrow band of perception, which I call the postage stamp consensus. And this consensus um, waves away uh, any idea that reality, as mainstream science tells us, ludicrous, is not true, that um, there can be any manipulation of human society by a non-human force we can't see, because most people think, um, well, why can't we see them? You know, I, I, I can see everything there is to see in the space I'm looking at. When in truth, what we, what we call visual reality is a tiny, tiny, ludicrously narrow band called visible light. And, and all, the, um, all the perceptual download holds us in this narrow band of sense of the possible and it puts people in bubbles. They, people are breaking out of them now more and more, but but m- most people are still in this bubble. And this bubble has a reflex action response to anything that is not in the perceptual range of the bubble. So when people like me come out and say, blah, 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 we're being manipulated by a non-human force, the bubble reaction is, you're mad. But, but the, the bubble also has a protection mechanism, which plays out in one sense that they won't then go and look at the books and say, well, okay, look, what's the, how's this guy justifying this? No, no. One line, and this is why you get in the media. David Arch says we're ruled by six-foot lizards, or is it seven-foot lizards or eight-foot lizards or whatever? And that's where it stops. Oh, he says we're ruled by lizards. He's got to be mad. This is how the perception thing works. And what I'm saying is when you study it deeply – this, these perceptual bubbles constantly are underpinned by what we call the education system, by the media and all that stuff. And journalists, where do they judge the uh, um, report the world from and observe the world from? The bubble, because they've been through the same uh, perceptual download as everyone else. It's 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 the blind leading the bloody blind, really. And and so we have. Um, uh, this uh, situation where you've got this this perceptual uh, these perceptual tramlines, and it's been done systematically. They don't want us to know the true nature of reality. Um, they don't want us to know the true nature of history, because if we did, then the pennies would start to drop on why human society is as it is and how mysteries can be explained with perfect, simple logic once you realize what reality is as opposed to what we're we're, uh, uh, told it is. So I'll give you a quick example of that. Um, When I say that these bloodlines we're talking about, the, the um, the most inner core of them, have the ability to move between human and non-human form. Immediately, bubble perception says, that's crazy, impossible. He's mad. So um, why is that then? Well, you can't have a solid body change into another form and back again. No, you can't. But the body is not solid. It's a hologram, illusory solidity. Um, and we're told that the body is made of atoms. We're told this wall is made of atoms. Atoms have no solidity. It, they're basically, what nothing's empty space, but what appears to be just empty space, there's no solidity. And atoms that aren't solid can't make a solid wall, and they can't make a solid body. This reality in its base form is waveform information. Think Wi-Fi. Think Wi-Fi. And we decode that information into the world, holographic, not physical, that we think is the world we're experiencing. And you can produce a very simple analogy for that. In this room, if there's Wi-Fi in this room, I take it there is, um, where is it? Where is the Wi-Fi? Well, I can't see it, so it can't exist, but you know Wi-Fi exists, don't you? Well, how do you know? Because you get a computer and a computer decodes Wi-Fi radiation waveform fields into a completely different form on the screen of the computer. And that's what's happening all the time. The World Wide Web is in this room. A computer and that which programs the computer decides what part of that World Wide Web it puts on the screen. This is what we're doing. So you have waveform, this body is a waveform information field, it's fluid, it's not um, solid. And these, um, take first a human energetic field, a human energetic information field which we then decode into apparent solidity, holographic, and you can... um, you can just take the way the five senses work to, to explain that. What do the five senses do? Take the ear, the tongue, anything. They take waveform information, the ears in terms of sound. They turn it into electrical information, same information, different form. They communicate it to the brain, and then the brain um, decodes it into the form that we think is external to us, but is actually inside us, like, like, like the internet is inside the computer. We see it on the screen, but it's inside the computer. So if it's a human energetic field, that information field is the information we decode into what appears to be a human, like I'm decoding your field now. But these hybrids are dual information fields. Um, when I say they're hybrids, yes, genetically they're hybrid. But what is what is genetics? It's the holographic expression, decoded expression of the waveform level of the body. So there's dual information fields. So you're not. But let's just take it as a as just take it as a, as, a, as an example. You're the queen, <laughs> or, or or one of these bloodlines. Oh, don't start a Christmas <laughs> broadcast, mate! For goodness' sake. Um, <laughs> um. And you're, you are projecting, as you do all the time in public. You must kneel before me, David. Oh, that'll be the bloody day, Sean. <laughs> I can't I call you Sean, can I, ma'am? And, um, and, and, and therefore, I'm decoding your, your human field. But in the rituals, I've talked to so many people all over the world who've seen this happen with different, you know, very famous people, including the Royals. There's a shift in the field. So suddenly the other field becomes the dominant one. Now I'm observing you. I'm no longer decoding your human field. I'm now decoding the non-human field. Now in my decoding perception, you have just physically shifted from physically human to physically non-human, but that's not what's happened your information field, fluid, not solid, has shifted. And I'm now decoding a different field to what I was decoding before, and thus you appear to have shape shifted physically, but there is no physical, so you haven't done that. Um, and, and again, if this is not explained, and it isn't except in the books, um, then people, and they do this across a great, great spectrum of subjects they'll wave away things that can be supported by the evidence without further research, simply because the bubble perception says, that's ridiculous. And if we are going to turn this world around, people have to take their perceptions back and realize that the world they think they've been experiencing all their lives ain't the one they're actually experiencing. And once you realize how this Um, reality really works, then you start to understand that this cabal, what I call the death cult, it knows that. It knows how we decode reality. It knows that we decode reality and experience reality as a result of the perceptions we have. Thus, not only can they get people to believe things, but through the beliefs they, they get people to accept and to believe are real, they're also um, dictating people's experience, um, and the whole thing is a, a perceptual, um, uh, a, a perceptual trick, a perceptual magic trick. Now, um, where do we get our perceptions from? We get them from information received. Um, we get them from a personal experience. That's information. We get them from the ten o'clock news. We get them off a Facebook post. We get them off a radio station or whatever and from that information we form our perceptions which then become our behavior and responses so who controls information overwhelmingly controls mass perception and this is why this death cult controls the media it controls silicon valley this is what all the censorship now is all about Through the Silicon Valley corporations, which I say are death cult corporations, it's to stop other information being received by people, to challenge the official narratives of everything, and in challenging them, as we've both seen, the power of it to change perception as a result of having an access to a different. Uh, perspective and source of information. They're trying to cut that off. It's what it's all about. And and this is why, to an extent, the mainstream media will go so far because it has to, to maintain any credibility like the Epstein thing. But it stops. It stops before the finger comes out the dike. And so you, you see a big, oh, Epstein this, Epstein that, Epstein, boom. And that's what we've seen. And so much of it's been cut off. And if it wasn't for the Andrew angle, then we'd be hardly hearing much about Epstein compared with what there is to come out now. He completely reignited it. I've got two things to say to the viewers, and
1: I've got two following questions from there. First thing to the viewers then, David talked about this postage stamp confinement of viewpoints. And if you go outside of it, you get censored. So my channel and David's channel, people are getting unsubscribed. We're getting shadow banned on our videos and we're getting demonetized left and right. So if you are watching this content and you are enjoying it, it is free to subscribe to our channels. Um, All the links for David's socials and his channel and his book, all of his books, are in the description box below this video. And at the bottom right hand corner of this video, you can click over and subscribe to my channel as well. We're also hoping that David will get on the Joe Rogan podcasts of people out there i know a lot of people who watch my youtube videos also watch joe rogan videos start sending messages in to joe rogan requesting that david gets on the joe rogan podcast and i know if enough people do that he's going to start paying attention i think it would be an absolutely mind-blowing interview the most watched interview on joe rogan i believe is the david is um, alex jones one So you know they love conspiracies. That audience, it would be be absolutely massive. Now the next thing, you know, people have tried to discredit David. You know, saying that he's, you know, reptilian lizards are just bouncing around the royal palace. And how can you listen to this guy? He's he's a complete nut job. Now on what he said about the change in consciousness and brain chemistry, I witnessed that. You know, I served almost six years in Arizona prison. I live with some murderers and some psychopaths and they could be so charming on some days, you know, just like Ted Bundy, Charming the Judge. You've all saw it on Netflix. And then on other days, their brain chemistry would change and their eyes would be like little pinholes or or big and you could just feel that dark, dangerous energy coming off them. And as a normal person, just feeling that energy field, you know, it's it, it, it's frightening. It, it, it raises the arms, raises the hers on your arms. So there are people out there whose brains are built differently from the average people. and These are psychopaths. And I've lived with them. I've experienced that energy field change. And David's exactly right. Now, to get to the top of politics, to get to the top of business, A lot of those people have got those traits as well. They're absolute psychopaths. So just to go on to the two further questions now from what David just said, first question is, with the bloodlines of the Illuminati, is there one dominant bloodline or are there multiple bloodlines competing and that's what creates world
2: wars? Well, um, if I could just say one quick thing very quickly from what you just said. yeah, What you've just described is basically possession um, because, as I've just um, been talking about, the the base form of the body is um, waveform. These entities operating outside of human sight, um, some of them not far, um, also are, have a waveform pattern, right? That's their en- en- energetic field, their information field. What happens with possession is... This, that field starts to, it's called wave entanglement scientifically, where the waves connect. You know, if you throw two pebbles in a pond and the waves come out and then they collide with each other, that pattern is called entanglement. So the waves of the possessing entity um, entangle with the waves of the, the body, uh, mind of the um, person being possessed. And it can be done mildly in the sense that it will affect the person's perceptions and behavior. But when that possessing entity's field entangles massively with the um, possessed person's field, what happens is the information field of the person. Starts to be infused more and more with the information field of the of the possessing entity And that's when faces start to change, you know, like the exorcist movie stuff type when when I've seen it I've bloody seen it where people's faces just change. It's because I'm decoding the possessed Person's field before they're possessed. I see a human and then uh, the possessed entity starts to get a grip and infuse its information field into the into the person now That person's hologram is Starting to shift because it's based on a different information source now. And so I See a, a person apparently face um, shifting now one of the things I've talked about in the books, which is absolutely what you've just described is that often these entities will um, they'll connect Um, with someone, but but then they'll they'll, they'll kind of stay in the background. And when they're in the background, you would describe them as you have nice people. They're lovely people. But then when the entity wants to impose itself upon that person, then they become a completely different personality because this possessing entity is a freaking psychopath. That's why that which is possessed becomes psychopathic. And basically, these bloodlines and these these hybrid bloods, it, it, it's a form of possession, really. Um, and so, people will you'll name people in the books about what they're doing, and and people will say to you, oh, "I met him. He was a lovely bloke." Well, yeah, I'm sure he was, but I wonder what you think if you saw him in the ritual. You know what I mean? Not the same people. Uh, and uh, so. Um, These things can be explained, but only once we let go that the world is solid and physical. Because while we hold on to that, which quantum physics has long shown not to be true, then what is happening cannot be explained. And mainstream science, as opposed to things like quantum physics and that whole area of beyond physical research. Mainstream science um, says about so many things, well, we can't explain that. Well, the reason they can't explain that is they're coming from the world is solid and they'll never explain it. Once they realize it's not and how reality really is, these mysteries, oh, it's a mystery. how do you explain, doddle, doddle. I left school at 15. Never passed a major exam in my life. Never mind university. Played for Oxford United for three months, as near as I got to university. Um, Because you don't need a scientific mind to understand the world. You do not need an academic mind to understand the world. You need an open one. (laughs) And when you open to uh, information as it exists, rather than stay on the postage stamp and ignore that, Um, then you start to see the world as it is, while famous professors and academics are saying, we don't understand this at all, or they're saying that's not possible. No, no, don't confuse the limits of your mind with the limits of possibility. They're not the same thing. So Hitler was
1: obsessed with Germanic history and bloodlines. Is it the competition between the Illuminati bloodlines that causes world war?
2: you you, think of a pyramid you've got the top of the pyramid that's where it's all coming from as you come down the pyramid you, you you will start to get competition and 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 what have you but this will knock heads together if it starts to get in the way of um the agenda for humanity which is complete control not least through artificial intelligence and you see you can see a war from a public point of view and from a participant's point of view as a really bad thing but a war to this death cult is a mass death ritual and b the the greatest way to change a world a country a situation irreversibly is a war you know the world was not the same place after World War I, even more not the same place after World War II. And what was happening as these wars unfolded? Power was being centralized, centralized, centralized. And if there's a few of you and you want to control the many, you must centralize power eventually on a global level. So um, these, um, these wars um, are of benefit to this cabal because with every one of them, they are irreversibly changing society. Um, you look at all the centralization of um, global institutions, whether it's the, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, they came in the wake of World War Two. Uh, so, um, it's something I call, um, uh, uh, it's a, 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 a process, um, creative destruction where you have a war, you completely change the status quo. Then you have another war and you change it even more. And then you have another war and you change it even more. And what you're doing with each change of status quo is you're moving closer and closer to your ultimate goal, which is um, global centralization of power over every area of people's lives. And this is the the goal of this cabal. And one of the um, massive central Ways that they're seeking to achieve that now is the hoax of human caused global warming. When um, when I, when I um, was writing in the nineties about global warming being a hoax, um, people you caused by humans, climate's always changing. Um, people said, "Well, what, why would they? Why would they do that?" And I said, "Because they are going to say we have to centralise power over the fine detail of your life to save the planet. That's what's coming, and where are we?" That's exactly what's happening. We have the Green New Deal um, with the Democrats in America through this uh, lady, um, Cassio cortez Alexandria Cassio cortez this uh, New York congresswoman. We have Extinction Rebellion in this country and around the world. And what they're calling for is precisely what I said would be the excuse um, of... Um, introducing as a result of selling the hoax of human-caused global warming. And it's kind of interesting, you know, um, there is a a year that keeps being repeated, and it's 2030. Um, if you um, look at a United Nations agenda, which is using the threat of global warming, climate change, um, to justify centralized control of everything. It's called Agenda 2030. It used to be called Agenda 21, uh, um, 2021, was it? Um, But it's now called um, Agenda um, 2030. Um, Ray Kurzweil, a Google executive, says that by 2030, they want to be connecting the human brain to artificial intelligence. And if you look at what people like Extinction Rebellion and Cassio cortez and all these people, the climate cult, as I call it, around the world. They're saying we have a certain period of time to save the planet from destruction. That time, they say we have, takes us to 2030. Now, none of these things are unconnected, um, because the end, the end game is connecting the human mind to artificial intelligence. So, artificial intelligence, or whoever controls it, becomes the human mind in totality. If you've not
1: seen David's work on climate change, in the first podcast we did, we've got a good segment. There is an actual David Ike playlist now on my channel, all the different clips, or you can go over to David's channel and there's just tons over there. But one of the things that we didn't touch on in the first podcast, you mentioned how the bloodlines are operating on this frequency that they and they try and keep us from tapping into it dumbed down we've seen across the country some areas of the country are rebelling now against the introduction of the new telephone technology 4g 5g whatever it is is that to disturb our dna and keep us what's what's your interpretation
2: well again again um we come back to what i said earlier Once you understand what reality is, once you understand what the body actually is in its base form, a waveform information field, think Wi-Fi, then the reasons for things happening in the world of the scene take on a completely different look, different um, reason for why it's happening. So just look at um, the body. The body is a waveform field and it's uh, it it's uh, vibrating oscillating right now when that oscillation stops that's what we call death death of the body uh, and but there is an optimum oscillation which expresses itself in the in the hologram as health uh psychological health quote physical health anything that that affects that oscillation in terms of its optimum state, is going to have in the hologram, of which it is the information base, a, a, a problem. It's gonna be a psychological problem or it's going to be um, a, a quote, physical problem. And we are now being bombarded with technological frequencies, 5G is the new one, that are bombarding our oscillating waveform field with um, frequencies that are creating increasing disturbances within it. And therefore, we are seeing the, quote, physical health um, consequences of this electromagnetic soup that we're now living in that is getting more um, dense uh, all the time. And, of course, the brain communicates and processes information through electricity and frequency. It communicates with the uh, the, the body um, electrically. And any frequencies that disturb the harmony of that processing are going to have... Um, bodily health and psychological effects now 5g is a weapon it's used by law enforcement in america and the military to scatter crowds they fire a frequency from these big trucks um, at a crowd they want to disperse and you see the body is an antenna dna is an antenna The skin is an antenna. We are antennas. That's what we are. We are um, interacting, receiving and transmitting frequencies of information all the time. And what happens with this 5G range uh, crowd scattering technology is the skin picks it up and decodes it as the skin feeling as if it's on fire. And people run so that they get out of the frequency range, so they, their skin doesn't seem as if it's burning. This is the staff. This is the frequency range. They want to smack out. Okay, it won't have that effect, um, uh, you know, all the time. Of course not. But in 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 less than that range of power, it will have enormous. Uh, potential impact on people's health and on their psychological state. Um, and uh, they because it doesn't go through dense objects very well, 5G, it means they want antenna boxes all the way down the streets pumping this out. And this is the other point. The, um, the goal, the end game, is what they call a smart grid. This is why all this technology, almost everything comes out now, not even just technology, but ways of doing things is called smart. And whether it's a way of doing thing uh, something or whether it's technology, if it's got smart in it, they're all connected to this smart grid. And this, the smart grid is going to be, uh, it is, it's, it's unfolding all the time, uh, based on the internet. This is what the internet of things is all about, where connecting all these technologies, everything basically to the internet, this is all part of this smart grid. And the idea is, um, as People like Kurzweil at Google are openly saying, why is he openly saying it? Because the sales pitch is if, if we allow our brains to be connected to artificial intelligence we will become superhuman. We won't. We'll become posthuman and subhuman. That's the idea. Um, so, and he's openly saying that once the AI is connected to the brain, uh, human thinking will do less and less as we call human thinking and AI will think more until human thinking as we know it is virtually negligible, will have been assimilated into AI basically. That's the idea. And if people think that's far out, they don't understand the scale of psychopathy that we're dealing with in terms of the the um, the, the mindset behind all this, um, which, like I say, goes off planet um, and out of this reality. So um, you have a situation um, where this smart grid um, is planned to be connected to the human brain for um, everything... Uh, you call technology being connected to this grid and for the grid to be driven including the human mind by artificial intelligence and as i've said in in my books i keep hearing about artificial intelligence this artificial intelligence that i never hear anyone ask what is artificial intelligence what is it and i'll give you a what if and i say it's absolutely massively more than a what if What if artificial, I'm not talking about algorithmic AI, I'm talking about the deep um, AI. What if that level of AI was this non-human force? Connecting AI to the human brain becomes the vehicle for that force to literally assimilate the human mind collectively and individually. Um, I say that's what's happening. But I'm mad, so you know, just go and make a cup of tea. Uh, but this is the idea, this grid. And the idea is that everything is connected to this grid. Now, if you're gonna do that, this grid communication system has to cover every inch of the planet, by none. What's the only way you can do that? From satellite. And here we have now, Elon Musk, he's been on the Rogan show. I don't know why Rogan won't have me on when I talk about all the um, subjects that um, that he talks about and more, uh, or he you know, discusses in his interviews and more. And I don't understand why RT won't have me on when I've been discussing all the stories they talk about for decades. Um, um, I was interviewed by RT, very quickly, I was interviewed by RT out of nowhere. They came along and said, we want to talk to you. So um, I talked to them. Uh, for about uh, two hours they're very nice and they said oh we're going to run it about two days we're gonna aim it for two days it was two and a half months ago never never seen the light of day so maybe it will one day but uh, but you see what i mean um <laughs> you um there's a line you know if you cross it then um a, a postage stamp line some people might have a wider postage stamp line but there's still a line and if you if you don't cro- if, if you cross that then not having him on, you know, that sort of thing. But um, what I was saying is uh, Elon Musk, um, he's the man that said AI could be the end of humanity, if you remember. Well, he then um, created a company called Neuralink to connect the human brain to computers. And he's the one who is sending up with his SpaceX operation, the satellites that are beaming Wi-Fi and 5G back at the earth to create the all-encompassing web on which um, AI control of humanity is dependent. And the reason that they're rolling out 5G so fast without testing, without independent testing, um, and they've admitted that, they've spent no money on independent testing. The reason they're doing it is because this smart grid to work has to have at least 5G level of communication power. It's essential. So if you had independent research, some people have done it, not through the industry but themselves and found, oh my God, this is absolutely lethal. The reason they're not doing it officially is because if people knew what 5G was and what it could do. Then, I mean, people, the public as a whole, they would, um, there would be a riot, Um, and so they want to keep that from people, so that um, this smart grid can happen. Because without five G or higher, and and in China they're talking about six G now, this smart grid can't work. So if we're
1: bathing in Wi Fi, five G, microwave radiation, how lethal is it? Is it
2: cancerous? Oh well, yes, because. You see, you've got you've got this waveform field, and if it's in a state of balance, you are mentally and quote physically healthy. When it's knocked out of balance, then um, you are ill in some way. You have a dis-ease, disharmony in the field, and that will express itself in some kind of psychological or or bodily um, problem. And um, I talked earlier about the brain is constantly communicating and the body itself and the cells and all the different uh, expressions of the body are communicating with each other all the time and cells are replenished through that communication system if you've got something that is interfering with that communication system it's going to go out of kilter and when that happens one thing that happens is that cell replacement goes out of kilter and that's what we call cancer or and cell health goes out of kilter we call it cancer how
1: is it being stopped then in some areas of the country how can people take action against this
2: well the, the 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 only thing that that people can do is to is to research um information about it and then pass it on to every um person they uh can possibly imagine um you know people say nothing i can do well. They, you know there's phone-ins on radio stations all over the country all the time call in yes the the, 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 the usual idiot with a microphone might have a go at you, but so what? Someone having a go at you is more important than getting this out. Because one thing I've learned over 30 years, people cannot unhear something. It's so important. Um, so um, people said to me when I started coming out with all this stuff a long time ago, didn't you know people would, would laugh at you when you said that? And I thought, you know, I'd work that out. But the point is, if if I feel it's valid, it will eventually be shown to be so. And if I don't say it now, because what will people think about me, it will never be shown to be so because I would never have said it. So um, people need to chill out about whether people will have a go at them or laugh at them. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You know, we get to a point, right? We get to a point where people are connected to uh, to AI. They have no um, individual thought or emotional process left. And if they had one last thought, they might think, well, yeah, it's bad, isn't it? But at least no one laughed at me, right? I mean, what does it matter? It doesn't. What matters is um, making people aware, not making people believe it, that's up to them, making people aware of what's going on all around them. Because I know from my personal experience, when, when it, people are made aware of it from this other angle of looking at things, and we're only skipping the surface here, of course, um, it makes so much sense of the world that the official story of the world doesn't make sense. Information, valid information is very powerful. And like I say, people can go, oh, no, no, my bubble won't have that. But you can't unhear it. You can't unhear it. And eventually, as things move on and things happen, it's like that's what that bloke said. That's what that bloke said. And and suddenly the bubble bursts and we're we're away. And David practice is what he preaches.
1: I said, You're all right to send me a text when you're on your way up here. Don't have a phone, mate. So right there. Now we are just setting the table right now for the main content, which is David's book, The Trigger. So, if you've been enjoying this podcast so far, we are just getting warmed up. I want to just go back before we get into the nitty-gritty of the day, and we've already talked about war, sets, um, creative destruction, reset, centralization of power, and this is linked deeply to the Middle East. So... From post World War II then and post World War One, could you just give people a bit of a background on the Middle East, the Sunni, the Shias and what, what 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 you know what's going on there that just to set the table a bit more for what's happened here
2: Well obviously the, the the Middle East um was a place where there's um there's lots of oil. So it was always going to be focused upon because the the cult um, as I call it, and I'll explain more about that as we go along, um, which um, expresses itself through all countries, but expresses itself massively through what we call the West. They wanted control of that um, that um, oil. But you really can't talk about the Middle East. And I have to say, you cannot talk about 9-11 without talking about Israel. And not Israel necessarily just as a country and not Jewish people as a community, but talk about the cult that created Israel and controls Israel to this day and has since created um, a vast global network of organizations um, operating out of Israel, including in America. You're not going to eat that, are you? little spoonful. Stop my my stomach from rumbling. What is it? It's almond butter, cashew butter, is it? Yeah, oh yeah. You, have, you don't have an allergy, do you? No. Okay, no, no. I have an allergy to looking at it. <laughs> anyway, I am sure it's very good for you. Things that look horrible usually are, um, but you can't, um, you can't really uh, look at the Middle East without without looking at, at Israel and that which controls Israel, um, and as we'll come to nine um, eleven, and. You know, there's a there's a story which will take us through the Middle East and will take us into 9/11. And you know, I've been um, exposing for all these decades the the web, what I call the web, global web of secret societies and semi-secret organizations, which comes out and plays out through government agencies and the banking system and all that stuff. We talked about that in the last video. But there is an element of it, of an element of the web, that is very, very significant to modern events and certainly significant to the Middle East and to 9-11. And it really started in the 17th century with a guy called uh, Sabbatai Zevi, who claimed to be the Jewish Messiah. And um, he, created a a following that at at one point, according to Jewish sources, what I'm going to say now is all from Jewish sources, Um, because not all Jewish people think the same. That's another myth. Um, And uh, he had a following of something like a million people, which in the um, 1600s was absolutely fantastic. Anyway, he was operating in the old Ottoman Empire, which, of course, included what is now um, Israel. And um, it got to the point where the the sultan running the Ottoman Empire, the Islamic Ottoman Empire, um, wasn't having it anymore. And he said to Zevi, you convert or there's trouble, basically. So Zevi converted. And a lot of other people converted with him, and they became known as Donma or Donmek which is a word meaning to turn. And what they did was operate within the Islamic faith outwardly as is Islamic followers, but really followers. And I'm not even going to say followers of Judaism because it wasn't even that. And this, this will become very relevant. All this is in the book in great detail because what this cult did, and it was a uh, uh, an, an, an esoteric, uh, uh, you know, what we would call satanic cult, basically, is it inverted Judaism completely. Uh, just like Satanism inverts Christianity and inverts everything, it's the same thing, just different names. And so, if there was a, um, a fast day in Judaism in the calendar, to Sabbateanism. As it became known um, it would be a feast day you know so if judaism said this was um wrong then it would be encouraged in sabbateanism it became an absolute inversion of judaism um, zevi um declared himself the jewish messiah and uh, and then then died and and then in the um next century along came a guy called jacob frank jacob frank um, has been described by jewish sources as one of the most terrifying people in jewish history but again he wasn't jewish he was a sabbatian because he claimed to be the reincarnation of uh, zapatai zevi and the reincarnation of the biblical patriarch jacob and he took sabbatianism into new depths of depravity and inversion, and here the movement became known as Sabbatean Frankism. <sighs> These donma operating in the Islamic religion, while being Sabbateans, not even Jews, Sabbateans or Sabbatean Frankists, you, you follow that one strand of them through, and eventually, they become the Saudi royal family. Mm. Another Sabbatean mm. um, called Wahhabi, who was who married into the uh, uh, that, that Wahhabi family married into the um, Saudi royal family, um thanks to um the British Empire, who brought them together. Wahhabi, a Sabbatean, Frank uh, Frank is uh, um, was the creator of Wahhabism, the head uh, chopping, arm chopping, ISIS extremist form of Islam, which is funded and protected by the Saudi royal family. They're not Islamic, they are Sabbatean frankists they are part of this death cult this inversion and so you have saudi arabia running the country on death cult lines where people have their head chopped off where people have their arms chopped off where the um, big time and frankist crown prince mohammed bin Salman, who was responsible for the horrific cutting up death cult ritual of uh, Yamal Khashoggi, the uh, Saudi dissident journalist, um, you start to understand also from this why the Saudi royal family, for a long time in the background, now more and more since uh, the crown prince came to the fore, in public, are so close to Israel. You'd think there would be absolute opposites, wouldn't you? Because Sabbatean Frankists hiding within Judaism, because this is what happened, particularly after Jacob Frank, is they started to take the infiltration of Islam and expand it into the infiltration into the Vatican and the Roman church and Christianity. It's where Christian Zionism comes from. Um, and to expand it into, which was not too difficult, given their background, into taking over um, the Jewish community. And one of the most prominent inner core, that is, Sabbatean Frankist families, is called Rothschild. Um, And this is why, Um, the Rothschilds were so um, central to the creation of Israel because Israel was created as a Sabbatean Frankist fiefdom. What they did with the Jewish community is, and this is why I've said in that book, no one needs to read that book more than the Jewish community to see how they've been stitched up. What um, they did was start to... um, construct a fake history uh, to sell to the Jewish community and a fake um, a right, historic right to Palestine. Of course, they wanted that land. Um, and they used the, um, the First World War, particularly, to get rid of the Ottoman Empire, which um, controlled what we now call Israel, then Palestine. As it as um, it's known to Arabs, um, and um, through the Second World War, very close together, of course, they then created a situation where they had the momentum to um, t- to complete the project of what they call Zionism, and take that land of Israel, which they've gone on expanding. Um, Ever since, of course, into the um, uh, officially uh, occupied Palestinian lands, um, and as I there's a chapter in the book called "Atlantic Crossing" where I show how this Sabbatean Frankist um, cult, which infiltrated the Jewish community, while the great majority, but while outwardly appearing to be Jewish and s- supporting Judaism. And, and what they call Zionism, and they they created a situation where kind of jewishness and zionism w- was were the same thing they're not um and they moved in on America and they moved in on, on on other countries, which is why America has such a vast network of israel serving um organizations uh which are massive massive unbelievable funders of um of politics in America. America. Now, let's look at some figures here, which will kind of bring this to light. Um, The Jewish population of the world is 0.2%. A lot of people will be shocked by that. They'll say, oh no, there has to be a lot more Jewish people than that, 0.2%. The overwhelming majority are in Israel and America. The people I'm talking about who are not Jewish in the sense of the word, but this Sabbatean Frankist cult putting on the face of being Jewish are a fraction of the 0.2%. In America, even though that's the second biggest concentration of Jewish people in the world, uh, they are 2% of the population and yet um and again that and frankist cult will be a small percentage of them most of them will not even know there's a cult and that from these tiny numbers you have this enormous enormous control of um of so much not least through um money um and when you follow that atlantic crossing through you see that this cult operating both out of israel and within the united states was actually the central player in 911 and not 19 arab hijackers who couldn't fly one engine cessnas
1: before we get to that then how does the cult fit in
2: with sunni versus shia well, if you look at religion, and you know, this, this, this cult, I'm talking about this aspect, Sabbatean Frankism, which, which came after the 1600s and has become a real major player in uh, this web. But the web goes back further than that. And religion again, you know, we were talking earlier about perception. Um, the idea is to control perception. So now they want to go and do it with the end game of technology and AI, but for a long time, and still today in vast numbers, uh, one of their greatest forms of perception control is religion. I mean, you look at um, where do most Muslims come from? Muslim families. Where do most Jewish followers of Judaism come from? Jewish families. Where do most Christians come from? Christian families. Because from the moment they were born, it was basically all they ever heard, and so it became their reality. But if you also follow religions, see, it's not just controlling perception. You must keep the target population in conflict and at war with itself, divide and rule. Because while the target population is um, at war with itself, um, they they are not seeing who's controlling all sides with the same hands on, on the strings. So you look at religion and you see the creation of a religion, and then you see the religion divided. Christianity went from Catholicism into uh, the Protestant version and, and many other versions now. And you had the the Sunni Shia division in, um, in Islam, and you've seen divisions in all these other religions. So you create a religion, which is a belief system. And what is it? It's a postage stamp. It says, you will believe this. And if you go outside of this postage stamp bubble, then you're a blasphemer. Right? And you're not of the religion. And, and so it's, it, it, it's all about perception because they know that perception becomes behavior, behavior becomes society. Uh, and uh, you see this um, everywhere you go. And uh, you, there, there's divisions in Judaism. There's, there's divisions in, in every um, religion. And so you play religions off against each other, but you also play factions within religions as off against each other. And we have a modern version of that now which is called woke v non woke. Uh, woke, I love it. Obviously, um, you know they're not teaching grammar very well in the schools these days. <laughs> I'm woke. I'll, I'll try being awake, mate. Much better. Um, and what they've done with Trump? Just mm-hmm. a very quick aside. They wanted Trump in because they wanted a figure um, through which they could divide America. Um, it, it, trump is a figure and and you know when you read um you read books by marxist manipulators they'll tell you um there's a guy called olinsky in America uh, out of chicago who people like clinton and and um and uh, nancy Pelosi were kind of followers of and um he talked about the fact that when you when you basically want to divide a society, um, don't go for kind of gray, faceless corporations. Pick an individual. Focus it all on an individual. Make everything his fault, her fault. And that's what they've done with Trump. They brought him up so he can become this divisive figure. And what's happened is the Democratic Party has been driven further that way as a result of Trump. And they've created... If not physical, then certainly verbal civil war in America. This is this is how it's done. So dividing religions into factions is just par for the course, dividing politics into factions. It's just the way they work. They want us divided so that um, we won't come together in unity and see what the game really is and in the unity that it can be dealt with. Divide and conquer, that has been used and applied for centuries
1: And it's still, you know, like David's described, still strongly used today. Now, in the history of the world wars, post-World War II, we saw America was concerned about the poorer countries falling to communism. And the Russians invaded Afghanistan. The CIA are arming the Mujahideen, including bin Laden, and building a relationship with bin Laden. And there's some prime moving characters that I'd like to, to discuss here. Um, my next question is, the history
2: of the Bush family and the bin Laden family, their relationship? Oh, yeah. I mean, um, uh, Father Bush and the bin Ladens were um, very close uh, through uh, a company called the Carlisle Group, um, which was a, uh, a big operation of manipulation. In fact, according to reports, so Father Bush was meeting the Bin Ladens at a meeting of the um, Carlisle Group in Washington across 9-11. You know, there were many coincidences like that, I can tell you. But just very quickly, one of the things I point out, because you just mentioned you just mentioned Ru- Russia and what have you. One of the fascinating things that you find is that the Russian Revolution was funded by Sabbatee and Frankists. It was funded by the Rothschilds, and it was funded by um, a guy called uh, Jacob Schiff, out of America, was a, a um, man, um, who was a Rothschild frontman, who was connected to Leon Trotsky, etc. And what you find, and you know, when where the um, uh, the anti-Semitism protection racket, which is basically a, an expression of the cult. Uh, tries to attack me as they say he says he says jewish people were behind the russian revolution um well yeah because they were but they weren't jewish that's The point this is the point this is this is the whole thing that's missed but they want people to say they were jewish in the sense of that word because then they can silence you and stop your meetings by calling you anti-semitic it's what i call the protection racket it's not protecting jewish people it's protecting the cult and the um, and and um, the Israeli government anyway what you find is when you look at the official records of the Soviet revolution immediately after 1917 of 556 leading positions um Something like 400, actually, it wasn't something like it was, 458 were Jewish. What did I say? 0.2% of the global population. But they weren't Jewish. They were Sabbatean Frankists. That's why they were operating with Rothschild money. Why do you think Trotsky was assassinated? Well... I don't know if, if you, I, I, you, you, you there'll be many reasons that that we don't know about, but the the, the point is that this um, Russian revolution was orchestrated by the cult and what did what did the the, the, the Russian revolution do immediately it got power started t- including Trotsky, who was Jewish, started targeting Jewish people. And this is another this is another theme that makes no sense until you realize the existence of the Sabbatean Frankis cult, this inversion of Judaism that actually hates Jewish people, right? That's why it has no problem hanging them out to dry for its own ends. No problem, he hates them, right? So um what you um realize when you, you, you um see this Sabbatean Frankist cult cult is why so many times when jewish people have got to power they've targeted jewish apparent jewish people they've targeted jewish people even more than they would anyone else i mean if you're a jewish person today i mean including within the labor party and you criticize israel you get attacked as an anti-semite you're jewish even more vehemently than a non-Jewish person. So this is something, that this is just a continuation of something that's been happening for a long time. Because the people who were behind it are not Jewish in the sense of Jewish, they are Sabbatean Frankists. Um, What did the Russian Revolution do? What what we've just been talking about. It divided the world, didn't it? Massively still does to an extent, oh, it's the Russians. But, But during the Soviet Union, the world was really, it was cut in two. And so much um, happened, not least the build-up of nuclear weapons, that wouldn't have happened without the Cold War, which was a creation. And, you know, I've so- talked about this in my books, you know, why, why did they drop um, those bombs on um, Hiroshima and Nagasaki when the Japanese, for all the horrors they perpetrated during the war, by the way, the government and the military, but wh- why... Um, after the bombs did the Japanese surrender on terms they were already agreeing to before the bombs? What, why did the bombs have to be dropped? Because they knew the Cold War was coming next. They'd already got into 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 Russia with the revolution, and that was all moving. We'd gone into, we got Stalin, who was a classic, um, psychopath that these people use all the time and they wanted this fear of nuclear war which would divide and fear and frighten people now there's a big difference between saying to people these these weapons they're, they're 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 horrific what they do oh really oh yeah well that's interesting and actually seeing two of them go off and create that devastation and that mass mass killing that 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 has a different um a different effect on perception so because of nagasaki and hiroshima that that fear in the next period which was the cold war all planned this is this is a this is a a, a biorhythm chart we're looking at for the world this happens then that happens and that happens the fear of nuclear war was much deeper because people now had uh, a a visual perception of actually what it would entail. So all these things uh, are happening and and, and being uh, manipulated. And so then you move into uh, uh, modern times, where this cult is getting more and more control over world events. And as it does, something else is happening very clearly, and that is that um, the anti-Semitism industry which at its core is a cult protection industry from exposure Um, by dubbing anyone that exposes the cult as an anti-Semite, when actually you're the opposite, you're saying Jewish people, you're being scammed, look at it. Um, The definition of anti-Semitism is getting wider and wider and wider and wider to encompass more and more and more that you cannot say without be called, uh, being called an anti Semite, etc., cetera, etc. So now, this new um, definition of anti Semitism, which is being uh, accepted by more and more people and institutions, um, which the Labour Party accepted under pressure because it's got no bloody backbone. Um, it's now including criticism of Israel as being anti-Semitic. You know what I mean? So this is what's happening. And it's not protecting Jewish people. It's not the idea. These people hate Jewish people. It's protecting the cult from exposure.
1: So has it been attached to Jeremy Corbyn for the purposes of character assassination?
2: Well, look at the situation. You have a conservative party what will never say boo to Israel. In, in other words, boo to the cult. You've got a... Um, a Liberal Democratic Party, which is, of course, neither Liberal nor Democratic, ironically, um, which will never say boo to Israel. You had the whole of the Blairite wing of the Labour Party um, who would never say boo to Israel. Um, In fact, you'd never get a bigger supporter of Israel than um, Tony Blair. Um, But you had a few people uh, or a a, a group around Corbyn um, initially. Uh, who who will say, who will criticise Israel for its abominational uh, abominations in terms of treatment of Palestinians? Because um, you can be racist against Palestinians, it doesn't matter at all. You never get you never get come back for that. Um, and so they wanted to mop up that, and so you had this hysteria about anti-Semitism in the Labour Party to get. The Labour Party on its knees to um, complete the complete the set basically, and so now we have a situation where any criticism of Israel by anyone in the Labour Party is 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 basically an expulsion. Um, and you know, the, my, my my sons, um, we've got a new um, media platform called Iconic, which we've just started. And um, my sons interviewed a Labour activist um, on that um, a w- about a week ago, who 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 is, is a, a supporter of some the stuff that I say some of the stuff that I say, that I say. Um, and uh, he um, he pointed out that just sharing my information now is a suspendable offence in the Labour Party, mm-hmm. and I'll just give you one example of how ludicrous it's become, and an example of what I said earlier that if you're Jewish and you criticize Israel, you get the treatment far worse than a non-Jewish person for reasons I'm explaining, the cult. There's a guy called Chilson. He was born in Israel. He um, served as a a conscript, as they do, in um, the Israel Defense Forces. Um, And uh, then stayed on and did, I think, some PR work taking journalists around, showing them places that um the government was in the sea he served in the uh a war in lebanon in 1982 and then the pennies dropped of what was going on um in terms of treatment of palestinians and all of it and he moved to britain and he's he's thinking um how do i um what 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 vehicle can i have um i think i think he's at oxford university i recall. um what vehicle do I have that I can express you know, my feelings about what's going on there? And he thought, well, the Labour Party. He's been expelled from the Labour Party for being an anti-Semite. He's a Jewish guy <laughs> whose, um, whose relatives were, were in Germany at the wrong time. This is how ludicrous it's become. Um, because it's not about protecting Jewish people from discrimination; it's about this protection racket to protect the cult and its agenda, and to protect the cult's agenda in many ways more more than anyone else from Jewish people realizing um, how their community has been uh, hijacked by this cult. I don't know what is a bigger
1: myth that Bin Laden was behind nine eleven or Prince Andrew doesn't sweat, doesn't do PDAs doesn't go out dressed casually in London. Just pick going, jumping back
2: to what we talked about earlier then. Um, I, I can give you a quick one on that. Yeah, go for it. Robert Mueller, you know, um, Russia Gate and all that stuff. He was actually appointed head of the FBI two weeks before 9-11, right? Which I, I feel it in me water, wasn't a coincidence. Anyway, um, he actually said as head of the FBI... That there was not enough um, evidence for the nineteen hijackers to uh, being responsible to put it in a court of law, and and, and that there wasn't enough evidence for um, Bin Laden, right? And when I started investigating 9-11, which was basically from the day, one of the people I was in correspondence with for um, a book called Alice in Wonderland and the World Trade Center Disaster came out in two thousand and two was a guy the strange name of Rex Toom. Rex Toom. And we corresponded a bit when I was asking questions because he was a spokesman for the FBI. And someone else more recently, um, a few years ago now, um, asked Rex Toom on behalf of the FBI, why on their page about Bin Laden, most wanted terrorist, was his list of crimes or did his list of crimes not include 9-11 and Rex Toome on behalf of the FBI said because there's not enough hard evidence that he was involved. Mm. So you know manipulators have known since Noah was a lad. that um, or is that anti-Semitic? I don't know. It was just an historical character. It came into my mind. Let's say Plato was a lad. Then um, the um, that if you keep repeating a lie, eventually it becomes a truth. And this is how they work. And the media, of course, which is ultimately owned by this cult, if you go deep enough, um, they play the game of repeating untruths till they become and everyone knows that mate. And so what they've done with 9-11 is just keep repeating untruths, untruths, untruths. And it just becomes in the perception of not everybody, there's a lot of skepticism, but a lot of people, um, that that's how it was. It wasn't like that at all. So Russia
1: invades Afghanistan. Russia leaves Afghanistan. The Mujahideen are fighting, their back backed by the CIA and the Americans. So the story is then, the plot is that bin Laden then turns his sights on the West and on the Americans, generating this hatred that culminates with Mm 9-11. What's your response to that?
2: Well, it's a load of old crap. I mean, um, Sobigniew Brzezinski, who was Jimmy Carter's um, national security advisor when Carter was president, he um, admitted to a French news magazine um, some years after he he was with Carter that they had um, systematically manipulated the Soviet Union to invade Afghanistan. Um, And they, in his words, they wanted to give the Soviet Union their Vietnam because although people that invade Afghanistan cause a lot of death and destruction, they never win. Um, it's it's basically um, a place where you can't win. You just keep on fighting, knowing that there's no end in sight, what's happening to the Americans now. Um, so at that time, the government in Kabul, the capital, was a Soviet satellite government. So to draw the Soviet Union in, they wanted to um, put that Kabul government in danger of being overthrown. So they um, created the Mujahideen and funded them. And they wanted a frontman who would be the kind of focal point of the resistance to the Soviets. Um, And it was Osama bin Laden from this Bush, big time Bush family connected bin Laden uh, family in Saudi Arabia. And he's the good guy then. Oh, that Osama bin Laden. He's lovely. He is. He's fighting the Soviets. He believes in democracy. Comes from Saudi Arabia. Anyway. um, And then uh, they were the Soviets left, um, leaving a a million dead Afghans behind. And then there was this morphing where um, Robin Cook who at one point was foreign secretary in the Labour government and uh, to his eternal credit, re- resigned from office. He was in a different government position then um, over the invasion of Iraq. Uh, he, um, after he'd stepped down as a, a minister, etc., cetera, he um, said, was, I think it was in The Guardian, that um, Al-Qaeda means the base or the database because the people that were the, if you like, members of Al-Qaeda were basically the same people on the CIA database of Mujahideen fighters who um, fought the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan. So what happened was that the um, the Mujahideen, oh, they're the good guys. They are. They're fighting for freedom. Suddenly became Al-Qaeda. Same people. Only this time the scripts changed and uh, the shows changed. The vaudeville's changed. Now they're the bad people, right? So now we have uh, an excuse to do things because we're fighting the bad people that we wouldn't before. You know, if you want to go into a country and you don't have an excuse, then say there's a terrorist group there that's a threat to America or a threat to the world. And you're in. This is how it works. And, of course, Al-Qaeda morphed into um, Al-Nusra and um, ISIS and all these all these people. It's basically the old, old um, technique of creating an enemy to justify the fight, creating an enemy to justify the um, the war, justify going into countries you wouldn't have an excuse to do um, if you didn't create an enemy. And then, of course, that enemy was blamed for 9-11, which was a great way of obscuring who really did it. Just going on a sidetrack there. We recently had the global announcement
1: that the head of ISIS had been killed. What, again? (laughs) (laughs) How many times had he been killed by other countries?
2: Yeah. And and why do they keep burying him at sea? (laughs) They buried bin Laden at sea. You know, he's a Muslim from Saudi Arabia, not Jack Bloody Sparrow, is he? It's unbelievable. But, of course, why did they bury him at sea? So there's no evidence. It's so simple. Crazy, man.
1: So if Osama bin Laden was the hero fighting the Russians, then he becomes the enemy. Yep. How is it that the Bush family are able to maintain... Such tightness with his family, isn't his family a massive construction? That's right, in Saudi Arabia. Could you expand on the Bin Laden family and the relationship? Well, with Bush? well see,
2: see uh, this is this is what um, it, it comes down to. This, okay, um, you you are involved in the Sabbatean Frankist cult, which goes into into extreme Islam, it goes into Judaism, it goes into America, it goes into Britain, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but outwardly, because this is the way the cult works you appear to be a member and a supporter of a country or a culture or a, an organization. So then you, you hear people say, well, why would the Bin Ladens do this? Why would they do that? Because they're thinking that what they appear to be is who they are. They're not. So if you have the Bush family connected to this cult, You have the Bin Laden family connected to this cult. You have the Saudi royal family connected to this cult. You have those that control Israel connected to this cult, and so on and so forth around the world and around Europe. Then suddenly you see how people that appear to be even in opposition to each other uh, actually are working as one unit but the other people around them like the general jewish population in israel the general uh, saudi population will not know this The american population they won't know this they'll take everyone everything on face value this is a cult which has an agenda for human control on a global and technological level therefore country borders are irrelevant why would an American do that? Why would a Saudi Arabian do that? Why would a Jew do that? Why would a somebody from an Islam do that? Hindu do that? Because they are those labels, but only in theory, and actually they're all connected. And once you realize that, that, that there are those connections, then um, why someone would do something that's apparently not in the interests of what they appear to represent becomes totally clear so you know it's you, once you realize the uh, the existence of the cult then if the bin laden's are members of the cult and and um the Bushes are members of the cult well they're gonna they're gonna operate as one unit um and um support the the goals and support the um the outcome and so they were they were very close the um the, particularly father bush and the bin laden family and you know i've talked to people that were been in mind control projects in America in MK Ultra and and, and elite um uh, aspects of the MK Ultra mind control project who were close to George Bush who were basically slaves to George Bush um mind control slaves to George Bush and heard a hell of a lot going on and um it's uh, very openly that the Saudi the, the Saudi government was the, the Saudi royal family was answering to Bush because The hierarchy you see, the hierarchy of power, the hierarchy of control, is not where you are in the hierarchy of your country. It's where you are in the hierarchy of the cult. So if Bush, Father Bush, God, not boy Bush, (laughs) Father Bush, was um, higher in the cult hierarchy than the Saudi royal family, then they take orders from him, even though they're the Saudi royal family and he's a a one-time president. This is how it works. And it's this network that pulled off 9-11 because it was operating in America and it was operating in Israel, it was operating in Saudi Arabia. That's why most of the alleged hijackers were Saudi Arabian. It was it was a and and, and you've got families, and I do completely understand why, in America, who are seeking to um uh, challenge the Saudi royal family in court for their involvement in 9-11, but they're missing, they're missing the cult. Um, and I understand why, I mean, not many people know about it, but um, once you realize that the, uh, the, the, the cult connections, then it wasn't just Saudi Arabia, it was those controlling Israel and Mossad and um, the Israeli intelligence community in general, Shin Bet, the domestic um, agency, it was those controlling the CIA. You know, you know what 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 I've been talking about all these years. Now, now is openly talked about. They call it the deep state. But the point is, the cult controls the deep state. That's why the deep state does what it does.
1: This takes us into the book, The Trigger, and you write about the planes that were allowed to fly after everybody else had been
2: grounded. Two. I'll tell you two. I'll tell you two, and it will be so relevant to what I've just said. Yep. Two planes were allowed to leave America after all planes except military were grounded. One flew members of the Bin Laden family, ironically, out of Boston Logan, where the first two planes left, and another one was an El Al Israeli flight out of New York who was leaving members of the cult were leaving that's why
1: so in a criminal investigation if your family member was suspected of you know one of the worst tragedies in history 911 you would immediately get go to those family members and interview them to get information about his whereabouts and you know the possibility of this happening so the complete opposite They were pushed out the country. Yeah,
2: get away! Oh, they weren't the only ones either. (sighs) All right, so we've talked about it was a scam. It's a a total scam. There's not one strand of the nine eleven official story that fits with another.
1: So we've brought the Bush family into this nicely, and you know I've researched Bushes all the way back to the money laundering for the Nazis. But there are two other very interesting characters involved here. And you write about them extensively in the book. Perhaps if you could just give a, a bit of a summary about them and their roles. We've got Cheney and we've got
2: Rumsfeld. Well, why don't I give you a um, why don't I give you a little sequence of events, which will bring them in? Um, here's a sequence. In 1979, a man called Issa Harel who's known as the father of Israeli intelligence, did an interview with an American journalist in which he um, predicted that there would be an Arab attack on New York's biggest building. He had in mind the Empire State Building, but of course the biggest buildings on 9-11 were the Twin Towers. Also in 1979, Benjamin Netanyahu, Um, organized a conference in Jerusalem to um, call for a war on terrorism. Father Bush attended it. And uh, for preemptive strikes against terrorist states before they did any terrorism. Um, In 1984, Benjamin Netanyahu organized another one in America, and it was attended by the American government and military elite um, calling for a war on terrorism. He wrote a book around the same time. In 1996, Benjamin Netanyahu became prime, was prime minister of Israel by 1996. And um, a group of ultra Zionists um, led by a guy called, Richard Pearl produced a document for Netanyahu called a clean break, securing the realm, the realm being Israel, um, which called for Saddam Hussein to be removed from Iraq, which called for Syria and Iran to be targeted and said that the more inter Arab conflict we can create the better. A year later, um, 1997, uh, an organization was created in America called the Project for the New American Century. Uh, one of its key members was Richard Pearl, um, who did the clean break. And um, the co-founders of the Project for the New American Century were um, William Crystal, ultra-Zionist, and Robert Kagan, ultra-Zionist. Kagan's wife, Victoria Newland, was the State Department's um, head of Eurasian Affairs who oversaw the American coup in Ukraine. Everything connects. It's a very small world um, with this cult. Um, so that started in 1997. In 1998, this same group wrote to President Clinton calling for Saddam Hussein to be overthrown In Iraq, we're starting to get the picture. Um, In the the year 2000, in September 2000, this project, the New American Century, among whose members were Dick Cheney, who would be 9-11 de facto president, officially vice president, Donald Rumsfeld, who would be 9-11 defense secretary, Um, Paul Wolfowitz, who would be um, his deputy, but the real power in the Pentagon. Dov Zakheim, who would control, uh, ultra-Zionist, who would control the whole of the Pentagon budget at the time of 9-11. And uh, on September the 10th, the day before the attacks, the Pentagon announced that they'd lost um, $2.3 trillion. It had just gone missing, right? Um, well, I, I, I've got an idea what some of it was spent on chaps. But anyway, uh, and of course, they announced it on September the 10th. And not many people heard about it because something happened the next day, which these people knew was going to happen. Of course, that's why they did it on the 10th. Um, and uh, so this is what this is what you had, this group of people. also among the project, the numerous Century was um, Richard Pearl. Netanyahu's mate who wrote Clean Break and John Bolton, who's been calling until he got uh, removed by Trump all along, has been calling for regime change in a series of Arab countries. He's never seen a country he didn't want to bomb, John Bolton. So um, that's document that this project of the American Century produced in September 2000 called for a series of countries to be regime changed using American troops. And basically, the foundation of it was what was in the clean break, securing the realm of Israel. So instead of using Israeli troops, they wanted to use American troops to, to do what benefited Israel, what benefited the cult, basically. And so they wanted regime change in September 2000 in um, Iraq, Libya, Iran, Lebanon, Um and uh, other countries, um, including uh, North Korea, leading eventually to regime change in China. Um, And that was what they wanted. They called in this document, and it was an ultra Zionist organization, the Project of the New American Century. They called for American troops to fight and decisively win Uh, multi-theater wars, multiple theater wars in these countries to regime change. But they also said in this document, September 2000, that this, what they called in the quote, process of transformation, regime change, would necessarily be slow because they wouldn't have the support to do it, quote, absent some catastrophic and catalyzing event, like a new Pearl Harbor. one year to the month after that document was published, nine months after these people came to power with Bush, America had what Bush called at the time the Pearl Harbor of the 21st century, 911. And as a result of that um, that those attacks. These countries have been uh, ticked off ever since in what was called, quoting Netanyahu back in the 70s and 80s, a war on terror. Um, According to the New York Times, I'm taking through a timeline here. According to the New York Times, um, on September the 19th and 20th, 2001, immediately after the attacks, this same group of people I'm talking about um, operating under the um, defense, uh, a, a defense organization out of the Pentagon, um, decided that um, Saddam Hussein had to be removed from Iraq. So you're seeing the, the progression here. Then we have um, General Wesley Clark who was a former Supreme Commander of NATO, who went on uh, an um, alternative uh, internet TV program called Democracy Now! in 2007, and described his experience immediately after 9-11. He said, he went to the Pentagon, he met Rumsfeld, he met Wolfowitz, and then went down and met a general friend of his in the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the uniform level of the Pentagon hierarchy. And this general, he said, told him days after 9-11, they were going to invade Iraq. Well, that kind of fits because that's, that's where we've been leading. Um, and you can see why, where the Iraq thing came from now. Um, and uh, the, his question was, why are we going to invade Iraq? Had everything to do with 9-11? They said, well, we don't think so, but we're going to invade Iraq. It's coming from upstairs. So uh, Clark goes away, comes back a few weeks later, by which time America's in Afghanistan. And by the way, within um, an hour or so of the attacks, Ehud Barak, brackets friend of Jeffrey Epstein, who was the prime minister of Israel um, into the early months of 2001, he went on the BBC immediately after the attacks and pointed the finger for them at Osama bin Laden, and talked about an invasion of Afghanistan, right? This is a guy who, who was also a massive uh, figure in uh, Israeli intelligence. So um, they're in Afghanistan by now. And he says he went back, Clark, he he went back, and he, he met his general friend again, who said well, he said to him, why haven't we invaded Iraq? I thought we to invade Iraq. He says, it's worse than that, sir, he said. He said, we just had this from upstairs, and he pulled up a piece of paper, Clark said, and he said, we, we, we're gonna invade um, seven countries in five years. And the countries he named were all from the Project, for the New American Century document in September 2000, it included uh, Syria, and uh, which was also on the, um, the uh, Project, for the New American, American Century document, Assad, getting rid of him. Um, Libya, Syria, all, all of them, they were all there, um, Iran, etc. cetera. Um, and so you see the cult's influence in the sense that at the time of 9-11, you had Bush Republican in the White House and you had Blair, Labor, it says here, um, in uh, Downing Street, and they invade Afghanistan, And then they evade Iraq. Oh, Benjamin, you got it. You got it at last after all this time, right? Uh, On a lie, of course. And people say, why did they lie about weapons of mass destruction? Because it's on the list and they don't have an excuse. So they made one up to tick it off the list. It is simple when you realize how it works. Um, But then Blair goes and Bush goes and in comes Bush's opponent, Obama, Democrat, and in comes Blair's opponent, Cameron, conservative. And they pick off Libya and then start the process of the catastrophe of a, a, a fake civil war orchestrated by the same forces we've talked about, the, 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 the paid mercenary terrorists, etc. in Syria. Um, and then they go. And in comes the maverick Trump. And I said, I put it on the Internet when he came to power. Key word of Trump's administration, Iran. And of course, they've been targeting Iran um, vehemently and actually had planes in the air to attack them at one point uh, a few uh, weeks ago um, before um, Trump pulled it back. Overwhelmingly, it seems to me, uh, from the circumstances of the time, because um, it had been pointed out to him. Um, the consequences electorally of him invading Iran, given that he got to power to a massive extent by saying he was going to stop all that nonsense. Anyway, but now they're doing it with sanctions and trying to create unrest and protests that turn into people regime change. So um, here you have a situation where um, this ultra Zionist, I say cult organization, names the countries says we need a Pearl Harbor to justify it. Pearl Harbor happens. People that called for Pearl Harbor and and regime change come to power and regime change. I mean, hello? I mean, anyone home? So then then you think, okay, so who oversaw the, oh, or the entire investigation of 9-11? a guy called Michael Shurtoff, ultra, ultra Zionist, who was appointed in 2001, before 9-11, as um, the head of the criminal division of the Justice Department, which oversaw the investigation. Um, And so Michael Shurtoff oversaw the investigation. He also wrote the Patriot Act, which clearly had been written before 9-11, which was then brought out immediately afterwards to take away basic freedoms in America, justified by protecting the public against terrorism, and then becomes head of Homeland Security to impose and enforce the Patriot Act that he'd written. Um, How many people know this? That in 2001, 200 Israelis were arrested in America uh, for being part of a spy ring. 140 were arrested before 9 11, and um, 60 were arrested afterwards. Um, they Many of them were posing as art students when they clearly weren't. Um, they gave um, uh, a, a um, university in, in Israel where they were um, doing their art. That university turned out not to exist. Um, and um, there were a number of centers that they worked out of. And all this came out through a leaked document from the Drug Enforcement Administration. Without that, it wouldn't have come out. But the key place these documents said the Israeli spy ring was based was a place called Hollywood in Florida, not far from Miami, which was where 15 of the 19 alleged hijackers operated out of, including um, Mohammed Attar, Um, And they were even where these art students were and where Mohammed Attar was, was extremely close. And there were other areas in New Jersey that they operated, these art students and other members of this ring, where these alleged hijackers also operated. It was was a remarkable coincidence. Does this include the dancing Israelis? Yeah, I'm coming to them. Yeah. So what happened was that um, they were questioned. Uh, By the FBI, etc. And then along came Michael Shurtoff, ultra Zionist, um, head of the criminal division of the Justice Department. He let them go. He let them go. All this came out um, not just through those documents, but through a series of reports, I think there were four of them, by a Fox News reporter uh, called Carl Cameron. Excellent reports, where he, he just revealed all this stuff. Of course, they were off the Fox uh, uh, website very quickly, never to be seen again. But some people downloaded them. You can still see them if you if you um, work to find them. Um, and um, and then you mentioned, yes, the dancing Israelis. This was also um, a part of this. On 9-11, a woman was looking out of her apartment, um, looking across the river to the Twin Towers, and... Um, the first tower the north tower had just been hit and she saw these what she described as middle east looking men and of course the immediate reaction were they're arabs they weren't they were israelis and they were um, with a white van filming the tower burning only one at that time and other witnesses swear they were there before the first tower was hit And they were whooping and high-fiving. And this is where the term dancing Israelis came from. And they clearly had prior knowledge of the attack. Um, And two of them were known to the FBI, it turned out, as Mossad operatives, right? Um, So she reports them to the police and eventually they get picked up. They're held for 71 days. It turns out that they um, were connected to a company in New Jersey called Urban Moving Systems, which was headed by a guy called Dominic Souter. Dominic Souter, not surprisingly, when they um, investigated this, was questioned by the FBI and told that they would be back for a second interview. Well, they weren't because he was on a plane to Israel and that was it. Although I've heard, in, I've, I've just uh, um, uh, updated the book for the second print run. Um, I now hear that years later, he came back to America and no one said anything. He worked and worked and worked. No problem. No problem whatsoever, right? So um, you, you see in the book, the background to it. Now, the FBI and, and police were absolutely sure that they were connected to, to the event how would you know otherwise um and um this over moving systems was just a front uh, just after 911 everything everything shut down everyone left ran just a front box cutters boxes and all this stuff and um they were uh held by the FBI uh for 71 days and then michael shertoff ultra ultra zionist head of the Criminal Division of the Justice Department let them go <sighs> without charging them for anything to do with 9/11, and uh, some of some of the people supporting that um, included a, um, a, a, a well-known uh, ultra-Zionist politician called Chuck Schumer, and a very well-known ultra-Zionist lawyer, um, Alan Dershowitz, uh, who was, of course, is a um, a, a a or was a, a a close friend and associate of jeffrey epstein um and so you had this clear israeli ring operating in the same areas as the alleged hijackers were operating um who uh were just let go you had these five israelis who clearly had prior knowledge of the attacks two of them who were known mossad agents and they're let go um it, it and and wherever you look, with nine eleven, the same theme occurs. Who bought the lease to the twin towers weeks before nine eleven? Larry Silverstein, ultra Zionist, and Frank Lowy, ultra Zionist. Silverstein was such a close friend of Benjamin Netanyahu, this has been uh, reported by the Israeli press as, as, as well as the alternative, um, that he and Netanyahu used to have a telephone chat every Sunday. Mm. Um, what happened is that um, the Twin Towers were a bit of a white elephant, really. Um, you know, they were under occupied um, and uh, they were getting out of date. And um, they weren't a good buy. But um, Silverstein and Lowy, dominated by Silverstein, bought the Twin Towers and um, immediately significantly increased the insurance in the event of a terrorist attack. This meant that for a personal investment in the lease of 14 million, Silverstein and co were paid out in insurance four point five six billion. Um, Wow. And the person who did the deal for the insurance um, was a guy called Morris Greenberg, ultra Zionist, friend of Henry Kissinger, uh, who was from the AIG insurance giant. And uh, being very canny, or maybe he was a prophet, who knows? He sold the insurance on immediately to about 24 other country, uh, companies who took the hit. Mm. Right. Now, before I continue that thread, another one. Israeli intelligence was trying to get control of security at the Twin Towers since at least 1987. They first um, applied for it through a company called um, Atwell Security that was a subsidiary of the Eisenberg Group of a guy called Shaw Eisenberg, who was a massive Israeli intelligence operative, ran Zim Shipping. Zim Shipping, by the way, um, left um, the World Trade Center a week before the 9-11 and broke its lease to do so. Another coincidence, nothing to worry about. Um, and um, he was involved in the terror groups like Ergun that bombed and terrorized Israel into existence in 1948. So Atwell Security was run by um, Israeli intelligence agency, agents who um, worked with Issa Haral, the guy who um, predicted that New York's biggest building would be attacked by Arabs. In he made the prediction in 1979. So they would have had control of security of the Twin Towers then. Maybe 9-11 would have happened earlier, who knows? But there was a problem. The man who signed the contract um, for Atwell security gave the name uh, Avram Bendor. It turned out pretty soon afterwards that his real name um, was different. It was Avram Shalom, former major um, executive, if you like, in Israeli intelligence, domestic intelligence, who had to stand down for um, ordering that two Palestinians um, had their heads smashed in with, um, with with stones, and and had to stand down as a result. When all this came out, Atwell lost the contract. Um, so. We move on to 1993, only a few years after 1987. They're still trying to get hold of that uh, security for some reason. And um, we had the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, which involved an Israeli Mossad agent um, whose um, name was on the hire contract of a hire truck that was involved. Um, and other people were blamed for it. As a result of that bombing, the ultra Zionist, completely ultra Zionist controlled New York Port, New York and New, New Jersey Port Authority, decide, who had basically who had given the uh, contract to Atwell originally in 1987. They decided, as a result of the bombing, that um, security at the Twin Towers had to be uh, improved. And so, they hired an ultra-Zionist company called Kroll, Inc. to um, oversee the security, which they did right up to 2001 and and the, 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 the attacks. Also in 1993, a man called Morris Greenberg bought into Kroll, Inc. This is the guy that provided the insurance to mm-hmm. Silverstein and, uh, and to Lowy and... Um, uh, was this close friend of Henry Kissinger. So, um, we, um, we move on to, um, to Silverstein and, uh, the, uh, control of that, uh, uh, the, 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 lease, the buying of the lease that was sold by the ultra Zionist controlled guy at the time called, Louis uh, Lewis Eisenberg. Uh, um, a different Eisenberg, Lewis Eisenberg, and um, who was a friend of Netanyahu. He um, sold it from the New York and New Jersey Port Authority into private hands for the first time. And um, this followed the recommendation of um, a guy called Ronald Lauder of the Esther Lauder family, ultra zionist eventually became head of the world jewish congress and not only a friend but a funder of benjamin netanyahu and he headed two organizations in a, uh, in uh, new york um that were given the task of deciding what should be privatized and what shouldn't and they recommended that the twin towers should be um, privatized and that's when um silverstein and lowe got the uh, got the contract um and so uh, everywhere you look in the run up to 9-11, there were ultra Zionists involved everywhere. The person who was Rudolf Giuliani, the mayor of New York at the time, head of emergency management, um, and that emergency management operation was actually in um, uh, Building 7, also owned by Silverstein. You know, he owned that before the Twin Towers. Um, He was an ultra Zionist uh, as well. Everywhere um, you look and um, and then you look afterwards. One of the things that would tell you why the Twin Towers fell. Was to have experts look over the rubble and they'd establish why they came down. People talked about explosions just before they came down, et cetera, et cetera. Whatever happened, they would have found out. But there was this rush using a Zionist transportation company to get the the rubble from ground zero into Zionist owned um, scrap yards in New Jersey. Where the steel, etc., was cut up around the clock and put on ships to Asia for smelting to become someone's fridge, and there is a um, there is a, a, a quote in the book, which was in the New York Times, and it described the fast. Now let's just um, remember here that three thousand people were. Uh, killed that day. And many thousands more of their loved ones will have had their lives decimated ever since, and they'll never fully recover. And we had no investigation into why those towers came down. And instead, the debris that could have answered those questions was taken to these scrap yards in New Jersey to be cut up as fast as possible and shipped out to Asia for smelting. This New York Times um, article by someone who, to be fair, even though it was the New York Times, this one actual writer was obviously seriously pissed off by what he saw. And he describes in there this scene, given that background, at one of the scrapyards, the rubble was piled up. And by the way, it's been admitted by the authorities that some uh, uh, body body uh, uh, um, parts, body flesh, ended up filling potholes in New York roads. Story I tell in the book as well. I'm not kidding you. These are psychopaths. They don't give a shit. Anyway. This scene described by The New York Times, piles of rubble from being brought over to 90, uh, from 9-11, uh, uh, the, the site of 9-11, the Twin Towers. Um, and by the way, the, the company that transported them, the Zionist company that transported them, said that um, it was done like a military operation moving the, moving the, the, the debris because um, they, were, they were tracked. The lorries were tracked by GPS. So they always know where they were because of the sensitive material. What they did when he got the other end is dump the bloody stuff. And um, one driver, which the company admitted, took half an hour longer for lunch than he should have done in on his journey, sacked him because they had to get from A to B without anyone having any access to it. So this New York Times article, a pile of rubble, you've got... A, Uh, building experts trying to work out why the towers fell, who should have been doing it on site. And this article describes how they're waiting there. A big uh, grabber comes down, grabs some stuff, moves it across. And while it's moving across, these building experts are running into the rubble, trying to find anything that's relevant, and then turning and running back before it returns. This, This is the scale of scam that went on this callous psychopathy that has prevented the true story of 9-11 coming to light and people being terrified of telling the story because of consequences for them. Well, look at me. I don't give a shit. I care about the truth and the truth needs to come out. And at last it bloody well is. So then we look at... um, some other aspects of this, the last thing that the cabal wanted was this to come to court where the evidence could be um, put on public display. Their big problem was a guy, uh, was um, families with just under a 100 of them that didn't take the compensation, which came with the proviso. You take the money, but you agree not to go to court. A hundred, nearly 100 families said, no, we're not having it. The compensation fund pressurizing the families to take it and shut up, and not go to court, was overseen by an ultra-Zionist called Kenneth Feinstein, or Feinberg rather, who um, was also the person after 2008 that decided about executive compensation after the crash of 9-11 in all the bailouts, uh, the, the, the crash of 2008, rather, um, in all the bailouts. Mm-hmm. Now, these nearly 100 families that didn't accept that, they wanted their day in court, they wanted to, to, to have some evidence publicly displayed. They, the civil litigation group, were overseen by Judge Alvin Hellerstein ultra zionist whose son in israel represented a law firm that represented the parent company of a uh, israeli um, intelligence agents um, security company called icts Mm -hmm. that ran security at boston logan airport and at um, newark new jersey the company by the way that also ran security these are Intelligence agencies uh, from the American, uh, from the uh, Israeli mi- uh, um, military intelligence, Mossad, Shin Bet, etc., the domestic intelligence agency. Uh, they also oversaw security at Paris Airport when the shoe bomber got on. They oversaw the security at Schiphol Amsterdam when the underwear bomber got on. And as a result of the underwear bomber. Um, uh, Michael Shertoff, who was then in private uh, uh, you know, business, um, he went around the television stations selling full-body scanners mm.
1: um,
2: to make sure another underpant bomber couldn't get on. And that's where, that's why, to this day, people go through full-body scanners at airports, because of Michael Shertoff, head of the criminal division of the Justice Department at the time of 9-11, writer of the... Um, Patriot Act, Head of Homeland Security, et cetera, et cetera, that let all those Israelis go. Um, And uh, yes, ICTS was also running security at the Belgian airport when the bomb went off, I think it was 2016, and a lot of people died. So hire them, I would. Um, And anyway, um, Alvin Hellerstein ran what even the mainstream media called a war of attrition, to block the families getting to court. Mm. And the last one eventually, because of a decision by Hellerstein, um, they, um, they pulled out in 2010. Mm. So none of the families got to court. Um, his associates o- overseeing that civil litigation um, group of families were also ultra Zionists. Alvin Hellerstein was also the judge that um, oversaw the um, litigation between Larry Silverstein and the airlines that ended, ended in um, Silverstein getting a payout on top of the five point, uh, $4.56 billion of another $10 million. Jesus. Um, by the way, um, the, the judge that oversaw the Silverstein v, the insurance company's litigation that led to the 4.56 billion was um, Michael McCassey, ultra Zionist, who eventually became Attorney General of the United States. Um, Then we come to this. The other problem they had, apart from the families getting to court, the other problem they had was, well, there's gotta be some kind of investigation, right? We've got to have an investigation. I mean, it's the biggest terror attack in American history, 3,000 people dead. We've got, to, we, we've, got to have a, we've got to have an investigation. Well, no, if you remember Dick Cheney, Project of the New American Century, and George Bush, puppet president, resisted for ages any investigation into this attack. Why? They don't want any investigation. The truth might come out. So eventually, public pressure Forces them into accepting some kind of investigation. It's called the 9/11 Commission. The person they named to head it first, Henry Kissinger. Oh, um, um, more ultra-Zionist than ultra-Zionism itself, right? So, of course, that's so ludicrous. And he was, it was demanded that he. Uh, reveal his clients in his company, Kissinger associates, which would have, it, I, as I have said in the book, it, it, you know, it wouldn't have just uh, uh, opened a can of worms; that it would have launched it to Mars, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so now they had he had to stand down. So they they, they bring another guy in, ultra Zionist Philip Zelikow, who wrote an article in a um, uh, uh, one of these influential magazines in uh, 1998, warning America of a new Pearl Harbor and a terrorist attack um, on the, you know, uh, American targets. Anyway, Philip Zellico, Bush insider, very close friend of Condoleezza Rice, the Secretary of State in the Bush administration, and they wrote a book together, actually. Um, and uh, he oversaw the 9-11 Commission, um, which was a joke of a non-investigation. And I go into it in the book, um, building seven was a big achilles heel building seven was owned by silverstein before um the twin towers uh and not a lot of people you know there was even a judge i quote in the book there was a a 11 uh connected case uh you know sometime later and the subject in the in, in in the case or the evidence of building seven came up and this judge says building seven what's that <laughs> Most people don't realize three buildings fell, not two and building seven, 47 stories also known as the Salomon building, um, fell about 20 past five in the evening. In fact, about 26 minutes earlier, the BBC had a reporter reporting live, um, uh, saying that, um, building seven had fallen and it was still standing behind her. Right? <laughs> so obviously, um, they've got they've got the um they've got the press release uh, out of sync here um so it fell and it fell with the most obvious clear controlled demolition you'll ever see you know where they they put explosives in different parts of a building and and you see it with stadiums and big uh, skyscrapers and the the charges go off and they're so perfectly placed that it falls on its own footprint instead of toppling over exactly what if anyone's new to this go to youtube put building seven collapse in and you'll see the most blatant um Uh, controlled demolition you've ever seen. In fact, the the, the explanation of the buildings coming down is so utterly ridiculous that there's an organization as there are many others over different subject areas of 9-11 called um, architects and engineers for 9-11 truth, which are experts in their field. Lots of them now who've come together to say the explanations of the buildings falling is insane. Right. But not to the 9-11 commission. (laughs) What's, what uh, happened was um that the building fell it was obviously a controlled demolition D- controlled demolition experts have looked at it and have said what brought the building down controlled demolition there was one guy he's a dutch expert he didn't even know three three buildings had fallen and a tv crew went along and just played him the building falling and said w- w- what do you think caused that He said, well, it's controlled demolition it's obvious he didn't even know it had anything to do with 9-11 anyway um, so they've got a problem. How do you explain forty-seven stories and these massive, massive steel pillars um, collapsing simultaneously on their own footprint, which meant every single pillar had to give way at the same time? Ludicrous. So, what can we do? Well, they left the investigation into nine. This is not the nine eleven commission. The um, uh, the government agency investigating the collapse of building seven kind of panned out their investigation and eventually they they came out and there was a fire in building seven no plane hit it no plane came near it but there was a fire it was not a big fire but just a fire um certainly not enough to bring a a a, a building like that down in fact According to the official story, that fire did bring it down, which made it still to this day the only steel structured building ever to fall just because of fire. Of course, it didn't. It was controlled demolition. Anyway, the government agency then comes out and holds this press conference and announces what brought down a 47 story massive steel framed building an office furnishings fire. We're back to Prince Andrew, you see. When you're lying and you can't therefore tell the truth of what happened, it was controlled demolition, then you have to make something up, and it's usually ludicrous. Um, so the 9-11 Commission and ultra-Zionist Philip Zelikow. As we looked at this, this is, this is the 9-11 Commission report on the entire uh, attacks, every subject area, everything. And they've thought, we can't put office furnishings fire in this report because it will get slaughtered. So what did they do? They didn't mention it.
1: Oh.
2: There is no mention of Building 7. Collapsing in the 9-11 Commission report because there's no way of explaining it except by controlled demolition. Now, Larry Silverstein was interviewed on a PBS documentary in America about 9-11, and he was asked about Building 7. And what he said was that the fire chief came to him and said, the fire's so bad, it wasn't. It was out by the time it fell, if you, if you read the evidence in the book. Um, the fire chief said to me, who's never come forward, by the way, and a fire chiefs that have been, I said, was it you that spoke to him? No, on not me. <laughs> right. No, never found this guy because he doesn't exist. <laughs> the fire chief <laughs> came to him and said the building in building 70, uh, the fire is so bad that um, we, um, we think we ought to pull it. Pull it. Collapse it. And so Silverstein said, oh, You know, there's been such a loss of life as if he freaking cares. Um, yeah, let's pull it. He said, and shortly afterwards, we watched the building come down. Mm. Now, if you are going, first of all, fire commanders do not collapse buildings, demolition experts do. And it takes weeks, sometimes longer to put the charges in exactly the right place to bring it down. So if that was a controlled demolition, which it was, it means that the charges were put in place pre 9-11 for that to happen as fast as it did after the decision was made. Um, Everywhere you look. In every aspect of 9/11, and I've destroyed the official story in the book. You find a ultra-Zionists connected to Mossad, connected to uh, military intelligence. By the way, you know m- many, many of those um, 200 Israeli spies that were let go were found by the authorities when they were being questioned to be involved in the Israeli military, in, in Israeli intelligence, and Um, in experts in areas like computers and, um, explosives Mm. and they were all let go anyway. Um, so, um, then when you, you look uh, at that whole story and then you start picking off other aspects like, um, um, like you know the planes and whether they were the ones that left the airports and the uh, hijackers and all these other aspects you find the whole story falls apart another thing by the way that the 911 commission did not choose to mention was that in evidence to the 911 commission norman minetta who was the transportation secretary said that um, before the Pentagon was hit, I say it wasn't hit by a plane, it was hit by something else. But anyway, um, there was a plane involved, in my mind. Um, and he said they w- he was in the bunker with Cheney, project for the new American century. Um, and the, tw- the towers had been hit and they were talking about a plane heading for Washington. And Minetta tells the story of a young man I think he was a military guy coming in every so often and counting down a plane coming into, into Washington to Cheney, 50 miles, sir, 30 miles, sir. And when it got to something like, you know, 10 miles, no time, this young guy said to Cheney, do the, this is, this is Norman Minetta, transportation secretary's evidence. He said to Cheney, do the orders still stand, sir? And Cheney, being the lovely uh, uh, human being that he is, kind of, you know, <laughs> sped, of course, have you heard anything different? <laughs> oh, you're Dick Cheney, aren't you? Um, now, and then, of course, we're told that a plane hit the Pentagon. Certainly, a plane was involved in that whole thing, but whether it hit the Pentagon is quite another thing. Um, now, do the orders still stand, sir? Now, the only way... That the answer that, or the background to that question, do the orders still stand, sir, would have been, do the orders still stand to shoot the plane down? Would have been had the plane been shot down. It wasn't. The orders had to be, and this is why you can understand the young guy being, you know, quite, you know, concerned the longer it went on, was that the orders were not to shoot the plane down, which brings us to other areas of 9-11. Um, in relation to that flight 77 alone that is supposed to have hit the Pentagon. Um, There is a no-fly zone around Washington. Um, And I quote in the book, Caspar Weinberger, a former US defense secretary after 9-11, who said there are um, Air Force bases all around Washington to respond to... um, road planes coming in and if they don't if they're not um transmitting a certain signal then they get shot shot down not only are the air force bases all around including the andrews air force base 10 miles from um the white house and the pentagon um there are ground-to-air missiles to protect washington and the pentagon of course there would be why wouldn't there be so what happened on 9-11 then a plane comes in um, and, w- and wasn't, wasn't uh, challenged, wasn't shot down, just allowed to, to, the official story says, hit the Pentagon. Um, why did, the, uh, uh, did NORAD, the uh, Air Force um, defense mechanism for situations like this, attacks from the air, hijackings, why did, they, um, why did they scramble planes from 130 miles away at the Langley Air Force Base to meet a threat to Washington when 10 miles down the road is the Andrews Air Force Base where Air Force One comes in with the president and where his helicopter comes from to the White House lawn? Mm. They don't have planes to scramble to protect Washington. Well, what you're having a no-fly zone for? If you think you're going to police it from Langley, 130 miles away. And another thing that happened on 9/11 is that everything that could go wrong did go wrong on purpose. Um, probably a practice for for um uh, Epstein's um, uh, uh, um suicide. <laughs> what happened is, I mean, it's kind of bizarre. Um, the NORAD at a place called Rome in, um, in New York State, that area of the NORAD operation, which was, this base, was the Peterson Air Force Base in Colorado and at um, a place called Cheyenne Mountain, top secret place. But the, 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 the center that was dealing with it all um, was the, call it the Need Center um, in uh, Rome. Um, I think it's not far from Syracuse in New York State. And um, they were obviously being completely misled, for another reason I'll come to in a second about what the hell was going on, um, because they were scrambling uh, planes to to meet uh, and, and and you know to to go to first of all the twin towers and then to the Pentagon, and every time they were scrambled or what happened in between happened to make sure they were never there in time. So take the, um, this is how crazy it is. Um, the official story eventually it changed many times was they scrambled planes from Langley to get to the Pentagon for this plane coming in American airlines flight, um, 77. But when the planes took off, this is all official stuff. When the planes took off, instead of heading for Washington, pilots said no one told them what they were being scrambled for. So they say they headed out to sea because they thought the threat would come from the Atlantic. right? So instead of heading for Washington, they went, they went out to sea, which meant they didn't get there in time. But bizarrely, NORAD did not scramble them to meet flight 77 because this norad needs center did not know that flight 77 had been quote hijacked until basically the time it hit the pentagon or is said to have hit the pentagon they scrambled um those jets from uh, uh, to to um to meet flight 11 which they were told had not hit the world trade center but had gone past and was now heading towards washington i mean you, uh, the whole system was scrambled and and, out, and 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 so when they were scrambling jets to uh, military jets in response to the twin towers they scrambled them from 153 miles away at cape cod of course they never got there in time um and now we can open up something else why was there all this confusion why were there all these strange reports that were scrambling people that had a simple common outcome that until the planes were down i don't think that overwhelmingly at least the first three possibly all four actually were the ones that left the airport but um the airports um before the planes were down nothing was done to intervene that was the common theme and all these different oh this happened and oh my god that happened oh dear well well, who told us that was all going on the outcome was nothing happened to intervene not ground-to-air missiles not scrambling jets nothing right um because that had to happen and be allowed to happen. I, I quote a guy in the book, a guy called Fletcher Prouty, who was a, had a massive experience in uh, the American military and in um, uh, intelligence. And he said once about assassinations, um, if you want to know who was involved in an assassination, he said, words to this effect, just look who had the power to remove the usual level of security that allowed the assassination to happen. And this is certainly the case with 9-11. Who had the power to um, to call off the response system, which um, normally would happen very differently? I tell a story in the book of a a golfer, famous golfer called Payne Stewart. Payne Stewart took off in a plane. This is 19 was it 1999, something like that. He, t- he took off in a in, his, in a private jet, and something happened that it, um, the plane didn't pressurize, and everyone um, went unconscious. So what happened is what happened 125 times the previous year, and I go into the into the regulations in the book. They're very clear. Whenever there's a problem, even if you're not sure it's a real problem, treat it as emergency and the um, air traffic control system the federal aviation administration contacts norad um, and they scramble jets and they get up there so with Payne stewart in a in a in a, a small private jet and a few passengers they went up there they followed it because they they wanted to find out what the hell was going on it's what they always do when 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 it kept going and and they couldn't find any sign of life um uh, and it went so far. Those jets came down. Other jets came and took over. And they, they, they uh, um, escorted this jet all the way across because in the end, they realized that there's no life. And eventually the plane's going to run out of fuel and it's going to crash. And they wanted to make sure that it would crash, not, in, not where there was any people. Right. And this whole situation it was all in the media was watched from the Pentagon from the command center by the Joint Chiefs of Staff and all these people, right? That's what happens. That's the normal response. On 9-11, nothing responded that made any difference whatsoever into the outcome. And immediately, the Pentagon was, quote, hit by this plane. They scrambled jets from Andrews Air Force Base 10 miles away to protect Washington. Right. It's it was all a scam. Now, here's another aspect of this. Um, They had to scramble everything. And of course, no, I'm not saying the people that uh, that NORAD needs were involved. Most people were not involved. They were just completely bewildered by what's going on. So they had to have a mechanism of creating total chaos bewilderment that morning to allow the tax to happen. Well, it turns out that the head of NORAD, a guy called Ralph Eberhardt, had um, and this was the word used, um, had decided to have unprecedented numbers of war game scenario exercises. There was a stream of them, I list them all in the book, going on in the skies over Eastern United States in precisely the areas where the planes were being, quote, hijacked. Not only that, because of the war games, planes that would normally be on the ground at Air Force bases were off during the war games. And what they have during these war games... Oh, and by the way, the same Ralph Eberhardt The night before 9-11, who had orchestrated all these war games to be going on, an unprecedented number at the same time, also put the um, defense mechanism for Pentagon computer systems onto its lowest level. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Now, when these war games are going on, (laughs) the flights in the game the simulated flights, and by the way, these war games involve planes being hijacked and a plane hitting the National Reconnaissance Center in Washington, DC, part of the scenario, right? So, they call it SIM, and what it means is the dots of the planes in the war games are on the screens of air traffic controllers and of, um, they have to be, of course they do, and on um, the screens of NORAD. And so um, the potential for taking planes, de- for, for, for landing planes after they left the airport and then they appear somewhere else has massively happened with Flight 11. It disappeared for 36 minutes. Uh, f- sorry, not flight 11 no, flight 77, just bit for 36 minutes. Um, and I've looked at the logs and quoted some of them in the book from the the, the the NORAD Needs Center, and they are waiting for the war games to start that morning, right? And so when the reports came in of 911 hijackings, their first reaction was, "Is this what well, what one guy said. Um well they started the war games early then right and people were saying is this is this real or is this scenario totally scrambled them and then they they had these um, war games planes on their screens completely confusing everything while while the hijackings were going on and at one point on the logs one guy shouts out get rid of the goddamn sim which they did after the Pentagon was hit. Um, And now, there was a company in Quincy, Massachusetts, called P-TECH. P-TECH was apparently a small company, but it was given um, the contract for the computer systems of NORAD, the Federal Aviation Administration, um, all the Washington institutions, the Pentagon, et cetera. And it was identified by um, a lady, a a, a computer tech um, uh, wizard of some level. She worked um, on projects for JP Morgan called Indira Singh. And her first interest in P-TECH from her knowledge, because she worked in that industry, was something called, um, uh, they call it enterprise architecture. Uh, and and um, the, the whole deal of connecting different computer systems. And to do that job you need to have access in real time to all the computer systems of the different agencies, right? p had that. Mm-hmm. Now her first interest was when she started to realize that people who were funding p were also people who were being accused of funding Osama bin Laden. Right? So her first, her first, um, response is, um, This is how the Arabs did it, basically. Uh, That kind of, you know, why are people funding bin Laden involved in this P-TECH that's got control of all these computer systems? And P-TECH was working with a federally funded uh, company called the MITRE Corporation. And according to Indira Singh um, and others, um, they were working, the MITRE Corporation and P-TECH, in the basement of the Federal Aviation Administration for two years before 9-11, working on all the computer systems and computer, computer connections with other agencies. And one of the big things that came out in this confusion of 9-11 was the apparent inability of these agencies like the Federal uh, Aviation Administration and NORAD to communicate with each other. It was come to absolute chaos, absolute mess. Well, Ptech had control in real time of everything it needed to control to put planes on screens that weren't there, to take planes off screens that were there, all of it on 9/11. Well, it turns out that Ptech wasn't controlled by Arabs, was controlled by ultra Zionists. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was a Mossad agent called Victor Ostrovsky, who wrote um, two books in the 1990s, and the first came out in 1990, who said how Israeli intelligence uses Arab people and Israelis who look like Arabs um, to appear to have Arab control of companies when actually they're Israeli companies. So this was a classic. There was a guy um, whose father was a big player in um, that area in B'nai B'rith, the big Masonic um, connected Rothschild controlled, um, instigated in fact, um, ultra Zionist, uh, basically secret society. Um, And this guy was running P-TECH. And then when I started researching that, you, you come out and you see all these computer companies in America, um, in significant positions, were all controlled by by Zionists. Um, and uh, you, what you find when you research this is there basically aren't any um, cyber security companies operating... Out of Israel, that are not controlled by Mossad and the military and and um, uh, and the intelligence network. Um, and, and I could talk about that as well because Israel is becoming a massive global centre for technology. Um, and one of the the um, areas of technology that they focus on is cybersecurity. Cybersecurity means that you write the security blueprint. And when you write it, you leave back doors in (laughs) so that Mossad can get into anything. I think the Maxwell sisters were accused of this recently. Well, the Maxwell sisters were accused of that. Well, that's kind of interesting because um, one of these... um, uh, systems uh called promise which was developed by an american company for probably quite you know benevolent reasons um was hijacked by uh, the american government and um israeli mossad israeli military and backdoors were put in it and they sold this promise software to governments all over the world with a back door in which they could get in and get everything you know one of the biggest sellers of it was this, is, this has come from Ostrovsky uh, uh, and, and, and others. Bob Maxwell. Because oh. Bob Maxwell, father of Ghislaine Maxwell, was a Mossad agent. And uh, uh, Ostrovsky describes how um, when uh, uh, he died on his yacht, the Lady Ghislaine, um, it, it wasn't because he fell overboard. It was because Mossad came up from the water and killed him. Uh, because he was starting to become a liability instead of a a um, a positive uh, uh, contribution to their agenda remember his daily mirror empire was falling and all that stuff um yeah so maxwell was was selling it he was a mossad agent so that i mean that would makes absolute sense what you've just said uh, as does Ghislaine maxwell's um, involvement with the uh, mossad agent jeffrey epstein oh you know he Epstein, there we go. I mean, in the end, it's a web. And therefore, if you work hard enough and dig deep enough, you you will connect it because it is um, uh, um, a web. So um, you um, had on 9-11 computer control of the entire system. And to scramble, which is what happened and create total confusion, which is what happened to make sure nothing happened that would intervene in, a, in it playing out was all in their hands at that same time. Now, I'm going to go back to a figure. The Jewish population of the world is 0.2 percent. The number of people that are involved in what I'm talking about is a tiny fraction of the 2%, and that tiny fraction hates the rest of the 2%. Now look at how many times I've said ultra Zionist in this interview in relation to 9-11. What are the statistical chances of any of that? None. None. So then you ask, if I can find this out. And, you know, others is a guy in America, Christopher Boland, who's done a lot of great work in this area. Um, why can't the media? <laughs> um, and why do even people in the alternative media who get some sniff of this, never talk about it? Because they're terrified of the consequences. They're terrified of being called anti-Semitic when what you're actually doing is the opposite of that. that anti Semitic's is a misnomer anyway. It actually means anti-Arab if you take back its meaning but um, it's pointing out to the Israeli community and to the Jewish community worldwide, you are being shafted big time and taking the blame for what this cult is doing in your name, even though you don't even know it exists. And so it really is time for all of us to put the labels down And to put all the the, the fault lines of division down, stop seeing ourselves as Jew or Arab or middle class American just for a second and realize we're all being shafted equally and come together and deal with this in unity because they are desperate for us to go on being divided and ruled and at war with each other. Um, And this whole anti-Semitism industry, this protection racket for the cult, it's what it is, um, is um, designed to stop what I've been talking about coming out. And um, I don't care about consequences, never think of them. Because if you think about consequences, what you're doing is you're pondering the possibility that you won't do what you believe to be right because of the consequences. Well, that's not going to happen. So why am I thinking about consequences? Because I'm going to do it anyway. And that, that we, we, need to, we need to start going down this road and not being intimidated into silence and not being intimidated into, sil- in, into sharing things. i tell you what's kind of fascinating now. You see why this gets more and more deeper in, in in-roded into people's behavior. Um, um, I can, um, my boys anyway, post, post news stories from my site on um, social media. And I, I do memes with lots of them. Comment memes, and um, when um, they are about this subject or that subject, they'll get shared. You talk about Zionism or Israel, they don't get shared. Why? Because they're worried about what will an employer do? He might look at look at my social media account, which they do now. So, oh no, you're an anti-Semite, even though what you're saying is, why is this happening? Why are these people always being? um protected um and uh we've just got to grow some backbone because the evidence is there and it just needs to come out and this is another interesting thing you see i went on to talk radio in britain i did two interviews with them, maybe in the last year or so and um their combined audience uh, viewers, views on YouTube of those two interviews is well now in excess of 3 million. They, um, copies of The Trigger were sent to about three or four programs. Wouldn't have me on. They were sent to RT, question more. Wouldn't have me on. Jamie had um, 5,000 press releases sent out to media organizations um, in America, North America, Canada, uh, uh, Britain, all over the place, uh, not one mainstream media organization came back. When you are, and you see, it's not a short book. Um, producing the evidence that um, demolishes the official story of nine eleven. Now, for that not to be uh, um, orchestrated is is ridiculous. Um, They wouldn't even they didn't want to talk about the things that didn't mention the cult, things like the fact that um, it's never been established that the planes that um, were said to have hit the buildings were the planes that left the airports. Do you know when um, whenever there's an air crash, the first thing investigators do or one of them. Is they um, establish they've got the right plane, and they do this very easily. Um, every part on a plane has a serial number. The plane itself has a serial number. You know, we talk about flight seventy-seven and flight eleven, but they're just like they're just like um, destination uh, um, uh, boards on a bus. It's not the bus; it's just the route it's taking at the time. The bus has a um, an identification number, a number plate. And so do planes. So what they do is they go, they look at the um, the debris, and there's certain parts, particular certain parts, they're called time change parts. These are parts that, um, never mind if they're not damaged, In if, the, if it's flown this period, it's got to be changed, right? So, and what they do then is when a part is changed, um, that's logged, its serial number is logged on the mechanical m- mechanics log. And so what they do when there's a crash is they look at a part, they compare it with the log, and they say, yeah, we got the right plane. That was not done with any of the 9-11 planes. And um, it was so so glaring that people challenged this, of course. And uh, under the um, Freedom of Information Act, they asked for the FBI to release documents to show that this process had happened. And the FBI replied that it had not happened because, quote, there was no question as to the identity of the planes. Well, of course, there were. You read the book. There's massive questions of the identity of the plane, but it was never done. Um, so, if you don't do something that's done every other time, there's a reason you haven't done it. Uh, the same four planes. None of the pilots hit the four-digit code, hijack code, which is the first thing they're supposed to do. Bang, 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 done. None of the pilots hit the hijack code to say they'd been hijacked. No one among the cabin staff instigated hijack procedure. Everything they um, would normally do didn't happen. That's not criticizing them, it's saying the official story is not true. There's a reason that those pilots did not punch in the hijack code. I say the planes were taken over from the ground, and in taking them over by hijacking the computer, that code wouldn't work because no messages from the, the cockpit to the ground uh, would have been uh, allowed. And remember, this control of the computer system included, contr- would have included control of the planes. They controlled everything, all the computer system, the 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 federal aviation civilian system NORAD system all of it and um, everywhere you look um, there's uh there's unexplainables and there's things that normally happen that, um, th- that 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 didn't happen on 9/11 it's it's a lie from start to bloody finish because the official story is just a cover to hide the fact Um that 19 Arab hijackers did not hijack those planes.
1: Do you believe those people were disposed of then, and are there inconsistencies with the flight and cockpit data and recordings? Oh, loads. Calls?
2: Flight 93. There's an organization called um, Pilots for 9-11 Truth. These are pilots, some of whom flew those actual planes, who um, have come together, like the engineers and architects, to say this story of the planes makes no sense. And I go into it in the book. It's devastating. Um, and uh, see, there were no black boxes found, they say, for the planes that hit the uh, Twin Towers, right? Even though they're orange and give off a signal. Um, the um, flight data recorder that records the workings of the plane and what hap- what, what happened with the planes, um Basically, engineering, etc., um, was said to have been found with Flight 93, and was said to have been found with Flight 77. What pilots, uh, what what pilots f- uh, for 9/11 Truth did is they got the authorities dealing with this to send them the uh, the information from these um, uh, these um, black boxes. And um, they, with an animation showing a plane, animated plane following those, that information showing what happened. Flight 93, flight data recorder shows cockpit door never opened. (sighs) How was it hijacked? Flight 77, um, the cockpit data recorder, not the cockpit uh, voice recorder, the co- the um, uh, uh, the uh, plane data recorder, um, shows a different route to the official story. A route that, if taken, would not have been able to hit the Pentagon, would have been too high. And this is another story about 9-11, you see. My, my, my feeling, I mean research this at great length uh, over two books now is that uh, a plane never hit the, the Pentagon. Um, but there are reports that people say they saw an airliner and there are other people that say they, small, they saw a very small jet that kind of whizzed past just before the next explosion. Well, one of, For me, one of two things has happened. Either the um the pentagon was hit by a missile when I, I show in the book missiles existed that would have done exactly what um that one did and that would explain why the hole in the pentagon was so small because of course uh, people re- remember the the, the 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 wall falling but that happened what half an hour 40 minutes afterwards before that it was only a little hole hundred. 25-feet wingspan jets going to get through that. Um, either it was hit by a, a missile, there's a very good chance of that, uh, or there was a bomb, or both. There's evidence that there was, there was at least a bomb. Um, but, of course, there had to, be a, had to be a cover story, and people saw a jet. And for me, uh, what happened is a jet did come in. And pulled away. And so, when the bomb went off or the missile hit, people associated the plane with the explosion. And there was a um, a police officer, police security officer at the Pentagon, uh, called Roosevelt Roberts, and he was um, in like um, you know a place where they deliver things, you know, uh, just just inside the Pentagon, and he heard the bang of the the explosion, and he ran out, of course. And what he said, um, and this was, the, the, he, he recorded an interview, I think, for the official record. He said there was this massive jet, silver, which was, of course, the colours of American Airlines, and it was very, very low, and it was climbing out away from the Pentagon. This is after the explosion and um people uh, when they saw this plane going up they talked about a second plane that this is why there was confusion people were saying there was one plane other people say no there was two planes well maybe there was one plane and something else that caused the explosion uh, which would certainly explain a lot of the contradictions of the evidence where people saw one thing and other people saw another if you put them all together because um you know i've quoted people in the book who, who were in the pentagon and ran out of the pentagon when um, when the attack happened and they say there was no plane debris crucially a plane uh, with lots of fuel in the tank there was no smell of aviation fuel nothing um you know the the book is devastating in all these subjects because you know I, I'm I'm giving an overview here of course it's all you can do in an interview but the detail is devastating to support what i'm saying
1: so the mainstream media then say the architect the supervillain is Osama bin Laden but the other face that's all over the news is mohammed atta whose passport miraculously just floats out of the inferno so he can be identified
2: right, it wasn't mohammed atta it was another one but i mean even even that um, how desperate are you? you see see we you know the longer we talk the the more you keep coming back to the same strands because it's you know everything connects to everything else I was talking earlier about control of perception so they know because if they're experts on anything i mean the inner core they're experts on human perception because that's their stadium it's their f- source of control they know that people if don't overwhelmingly look at detail they get an image of something a feeling so um you announce that a passport has been found in vesey street near the twin towers that's supposed to have fallen out of a plane that smacked into the building in a fireball um and they found it i mean was it singed i mean what's going on (laughs) um and what they're looking for is this feeling and this is another thing you know I, i studied for a long time mind control uh and these mind control projects and what have you and mind control techniques and one major mind control technique what one major mind control you know kind of everyone knows that in the mind control industry is if you get people into a state of trauma, they become massively suggestible. And of course, people looking at the horrors of 9-11, were in, whether they were directly involved or not, there was some kind of trauma from just looking on. And, and, and in that traumatized state, you start hitting them with information suggestions. So they're looking for, see, see, it was them Arabs. Look, they found one of the passports. And of course, as I mentioned in the book, A year after 9-11, a uh, British television um, crew from ITV um, asked New York police um, about the hijacker passport, which they, with the FBI, said we found it, and they said that's a rumor that might be true. Well, of course, it wasn't a rumor, and it certainly wasn't true. It was a scam. To, to underpin the official story. What they want is to put out the official story, like Ehud Barak, Osama bin Laden Afghanistan, and then underpin it as fast as you can and lock in that belief system, that perception, which then is going to take some moving once it's locked in. That, that's how it works. It's all a mind game. Um, and uh, so uh, Mohammed Attar, first of all, the discrepancies and the description of Mohammed Attar, who used the name Mohammed El Amir in Germany as a student, and Mohammed Attar, they weren't the same people. And they might have looked the same in some ways, even, but that's not impossible, is it? But they weren't the same person. Even the height was like inches, four inches difference. Um, El Amir was uh, uh, described as a lovely, nice uh, man and very caring and, uh, you know, like a straight Muslim. And Mohammed Attar, hey, man, you know, don't mess with me. What? You're this guy from Germany? Hey, Mohammed Atta, right? He is a uh, an extreme Muslim fanatic. He is willing to fly this plane into a building and kill thousands of people, all right? And because he cares about Allah and all that stuff. Really? Well, as I describe in the book, he had a girlfriend called Amanda Keller, confirmed by other people, in uh, Venice in um, Florida, which is where the Israeli uh, spy Mm -hmm. ring was actually based in Florida. So were these guys. Um, And uh, she described that how um, um, the flying school and actually I knew this anyway, before 9-11 Venice, the Venice Airport was notorious conduit for the CIA Bush, which you all know about the CIA Bush um, uh, Clinton uh, drug running operation. Uh, bringing uh, the stuff out of South America into America, Venice airport was one of the centers. We just happened to be where Mohammed Attar trained as a pilot. You know, yeah, these coincidences are amazing. Um, anyway, um, Amanda Keller describes how this Muslim fanatic uh Atar, his favorite food was pork chops. He was always getting drunk. Um, and he said, uh, she said, when they ran out of um, cocaine, um, one night, her and a friend, because he was producing the cocaine, they lived at a place called the Sandpiper Apartments in, um, uh, in um, Venice. They followed them. They followed Attar and his mate into the flying school at Venice Airport. And they came out with armfuls of coke <laughs> to resupply. This is a Muslim fanatic <laughs> who's going to kill himself. And I, and I I, I follow the story of Attar. I mean, it's a joke. Um, and. Uh, like I say, nothing, nothing stands up to scrutiny. Once you once you get uh, get into that, then you have flight 77 was supposed to have been flown piloted by a guy called Annie Hanjo. And Annie Hanjaw um, flew this plane, it said, Flight 77, a 757 um, jet, big plane. He flew it. Um, actually, the way they came in, he could have parked it in exactly the place in the Pentagon where Rumsfeld and the Joint Chiefs of Staff were. But instead, what he did is he took it across in a big circle, which people from Pilots for 9-11 Truth have tried to re, um, uh, redo on a simulator and they couldn't do it and only a few actually managed it. These are top pilots. Um, and um, he parks it in the one part of the Pentagon called Wedge One, which had just been um, reinforced to protect the Pentagon from such, just such an attack. An attack they said they'd never thought of before, 9-11. <laughs> Wedge 1, where it hit and killed a lot of people, was where the accountants were trying to find the missing $2.3 trillion that was announced to be missing from the oh. Pentagon budget on September the 10th, oh. 2001. Oh. Right. Now, Annie Hanjoo, master pilot. <laughs> <laughs> um, which the 9 11 Commission said he would seem to be the most uh, skillful pilot, you know, basically the best pilot of the bunch. He was banned six weeks earlier from hiring a one engine plane at an airport flying school because he was so incompetent and dangerous. It's madness. It's unbelievable. But it shows that purely by repetition of nonsense and by the mainstream media underpinning the nonsense instead of challenging it, you can get vast numbers of people, though not as many as they think there are, um, to believe that complete idiocy, impossibility, was actually what happened. So you talked about the Bush drug trafficking. Just a quick
1: opportunity to mention to people, My new book is now out for Christmas. It's called Clinton, Bush, and CIA Conspiracies. From the boys on the tracks to Jeffrey Epstein. And it's on Amazon, e-book, paperback, and hopefully we'll have the audio book back up soon. From speaking to you, David, from reading all of your books, go to David's website if you want to get this one. It will help him more than putting more money in Bezos' pocket. From researching Epstein, from just speaking to you today, It's just really reinforced how cults do control the world, especially with this Epstein stuff right now. Apparently, all these powerful people. You mentioned Elon Musk linked with Epstein, Bill Gates linked with Epstein, Prince Andrew, and so on and so on. Now, I did watch on the Joe Rogan podcast. He interviewed a lady out of Hawaii called
2: Tulsi. Tulsi Gabbard. And she is saying she's going to stop the war. She's the new hope. What are you calling on this? Um, What I'm calling on this is that um, Tulsi Gabbard has been very consistent. She has been um, opposing these wars from the start. And the moment she um, stood up and said um, she was running as a presidential candidate with the Democrats, um, the demonization started. Uh, not least within the Democratic Party, which is, of course, a war party controlled by the same cult, ultimately, just like the Republicans are. Um, so, um, I, you know, I, I, I'm sure there are many, many things that me and Tulsi would, um, would not agree on. Um, I sent her a copy of that book, actually, whether she got it or not. is another thing. Um, because she's also the political voice in the last two, three weeks Who's been pushing for an investigation into Saudi Arabia and and supporting the parents, the um the, the 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 families, um of 9/11 uh, um, victims who, um are, are trying to take the Saudi government to court over their involvement, um so. Um, she's been very, very consistent on this. And there'll be many things in other areas I'm sure we wouldn't agree on. But I like her consistency on opposing the wars and and, and going and meeting Assad, for which she's getting vilified, and has been ever since, to try to meet, reach some accommodation and to to, to understand, um, you know, what do you mean you're not supposed to meet Assad? do you want to understand what's happening? Do you want to understand where he's coming from so we can resolve this or not? But of course they don't want to resolve it. And when you meet someone, you might find that actually they're not quite the demon you thought they were. And they want us to think these are all demons so that we'll justify or support their attacks upon them. So I, um, you know, I think um, on that uh, Tulsi Gabbard is, um, is genuine and and, 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 and the best of luck to her. I, um Uh, On other things, we—I'm sure—we'll, you know, if it it starts to um, impact upon the woke agenda, I'm sure we wouldn't agree, and certainly on climate change, we wouldn't agree.
1: So she is a Gulf War veteran, I believe. She is.
2: She's still still a serving veteran. She works in um, in, uh, you know, um, you know the 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 medical side of it. I think.
1: So she's got the support of the veteran community. A lot of people have been abandoned when they come back from these wars, end up in prison, suicides, all this horror stuff. If she, with all of this support, it looked like she was going to win, or she actually won.
2: Would the deep state go JFK on her? Oh, um, well, if you if you um, if you look at what they've done to Trump, I'm no supporter of Trump. But you look at what they've done to Trump whenever he's not gone full blown deep state. Well, you multiply that a few thousand times, and that's what Tulsi Gabbard would get. Um, if because i do think she's genuine on on this uh, uh issue i th- i think she's genuine and if you're genuine and you are um you are coming in um uh, to to make that difference you're going to have the well i mean she's got the democratic party establishment against her already and she, if she ran against trump she might have a chance of beating him uh, the, the the other rabble have you seen them they've got a brain cell to rub together um but still she's attacked by her own party because that's a cult party you've got trump he's controlled by by the cult that's why israel gets everything it wants from from trump no questions asked um everything virtually the only thing they've not quite got yet is is a, 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 an actual bombardment of iran um and uh and so um they're not going to just let her do it but you know we need to support people i mean i don't you know recommend that people support any political party I, I i just want um people to have the information from which to make their own minds up but if if someone is uh, genuinely if they got into power and they were genuinely trying to you know stop this nonsense then they they need maximum support from people because they're going to have the world and his friend um the cult ultimately trying to destroy them. Absolutely.
1: So Hillary Clinton is already saying that Tulsi's working for the
2: Russians. What do you think of that? And what do you think of Hillary Clinton? Well, the thing is that, you know, when some people attack you, you know you're on the right track. <laughs> I, I I use that all the time. He's having a go at you. Good. I'm saying something right then. Um, and so Clinton attacking her is confirming that, that you know, she's... Um, Standing for something the cult doesn't want to stand for because she is a cult operative Bill Clinton. And um, I mean, the Clintons, they are they are they are cult to their to their DNA. Um, And uh, if she got to power, then, you know, all hell would break loose. Uh, and, And we've reached a point now in politics. We reached it quite a long time ago, but it's more obvious than ever before that there is no choice. Um, in terms of the major players, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, because, um, the parties are so controlled by the same force that they, um, they decide who gets in, not, not the public. Um, and we've seen what with, with the Brexit referendum, uh, what contempt the system has for the public making the quote wrong decision. Um, so, um, I, um, I wish Tulsi well, uh, because she's going to need it. She does progress.
1: David, you've been very generous with your time as usual. And is this possibly the longest podcast we've ever filmed? What are we at? Three hours. 3.20? We've only just begun, It's It's close.
2: We've scratched the surface.
1: And if you want the rest below the surface, the trigger, all the links are in the description box below this video. Is there anything you'd like to say in conclusion to the viewers
2: and the young people watching this? Well, I have, a, I have a, a, a term, the mainstream everything. The mainstream everything, whether it's mainstream science, mainstream media, mainstream politics, mainstream everything, is telling you what the mainstream everything's ultimate controllers, which if you go deep enough is the cult, wants you to believe. So the mainstream media basically says question nothing. Then you've got RT saying question more but not too much. And then you've got people like me who say, question everything, everything. Take everything off the table as a gimme. Um, Familiarity is a wonderful way of mind-controlling perception because once something becomes familiar, it becomes a gimme, it becomes unquestioned. That's just how things are. Anyone knows that, mate. Question everything. And when you do, you'll see almost none of it stands up, not least the nature of reality and who we are and where we are.
1: In the event you're deplatformed, platformed, where are you going to be that people can
2: find you? Well, we've just started a new platform, which I hope you'll, you'll um, be uh, interviewed for, Cheers. Um, called Iconic. I say we, actually my, my son Jamie has uh, put it together. It's brilliant. Uh, I was so impressed when he, he, he unveiled it. Um, and, you know, basically what we were looking at um, was this incessant censorship, and deplatforming and all this stuff, um, and through what I call the mainstream internet, Google, Google-owned YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, all these things. Again, go deep enough, cult, um, and uh, that's why they're censoring people that are exposing aspects of the cult agenda. That's what it's all about. Uh, And uh, so you can either sit around and and moan about it and say, oh, you know, tough in it. Oh, you know, we're, you know, I'm a martyr. Or you can say, okay, are we going to deal with it? And so what Jamie's done is put this um, media platform together, which is it's got films. It's got series always being added to. We're going to make a he's going to make a a film about 5g uh, it's already an enormous amount of content on it lots of stuff that i've done every every everything that every talk that i've ever done that was filmed and stuff it's all on there um so that it's not dependent on youtube and it's not dependent on facebook it's that it's its own self-contained entity um not just for now because there's a lot of stuff on it already um but you know, the censorship's not going to just stop here, is it? You know, we know that. So we have to deal with it and, and, um, and prepare for it. And that's what we've done. How many books have you published? Oh, God knows. God, 20-odd. 20 20-odd 20 must be. I read. I'm just, I'm, 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 I'm uh, three chapters from finishing another one. I'll finish another one by February. Can you mention what that's about? What the hell we do about all this. Good. And that's plenty.
1: First one I read was in maximum security jail in Arizona. Guy just slides uh, Alice in Wonderland 911 under my door and that I just never looked back after reading that content. So if you want to su- su- um, support David as well as the books, it's free to subscribe to his channel. Go down, click over to his YouTube channel. All his socials are down there. And a huge thank you to the people who have donated some money to us to help the production of these podcasts at this level in the studio people who've donated to Patreon, PayPal, giving. It's because of you guys, you know, this is this is possible and we've been able to interview David in here today. And also, huge thank you to all the new subscribers. Subscribers shot up a hundred, couple hundred thousand in the last few months and subscription logo is down there on the bottom right-hand corner of this video. And, you know, the best way to finish this is on a message of love, so I'm going to give David a big hug now. <laughs>
2: Oh, <laughs> there you go, man. Yeah, yeah, this is the example. Nice talk here. to
0: talk yeah, to you. Too. Nice yeah. to talk to you. New 900 megabits per second Future Fiber is here. And with total home Wi-Fi included, you can connect all around your home. Get our ultimate speed, reliability and coverage for just £49 a month. New Future Fiber, same great value. Sign up now and get a £100 reward card. Search TalkTalk talk Future Fiber. Talk, talk for everyone. CPI plus 3.7% annual increase from April 2023. Subject to local availability. Average speeds up to 900 megabits per second. 24 month contract. Reward card issued by GiftCloud. T's and C's apply. New 900 megabits per second Future Fiber is here. And with total home Wi Fi included, you can connect all around your home. Get our ultimate speed, reliability, and coverage for just £49 a month. New Future Fiber, same great value. Sign up now and get a £100 reward card. Search TalkTalk Future Fibre. TalkTalk for everyone. CPI plus 3.7% annual increase from April 2023. Subject to local availability. Average speeds up to 900 megabits per second. 24-month contract. Reward card issued by GiftCloud. T's and C's apply.